Hey there, Tim Curry. This is Ineash. Hey, Ineash. This is Steven. Steven, why are you one of the greatest actors of the previous generation? Because it was the only thing I could think of when the ghost that lives in his gold mage skill tells him that he needs to escape to the one place that hasn't been corrupted by capitalism. <laughs> Space. <laughs> I remember the first time you showed me that video. <laughs> I was like, oh my God, I can't believe Curry did that. But yeah. And and they just, they kept it. It was perfect. Yeah, he was cracking the whole time. It came from the glorious mm-hmm. age that was very brief in video game history when uh, like you, you, like games still look like crap, but you could put in really low res video of like actors and they'd get famous people to do these. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, so we can put a link to it if anyone's for the uninitiated. We absolutely should. Can you send me that link? Yeah, totally. Okay. And that clicking okay. noise for everybody, I'm going to do my best to mitigate it. I don't know what it is, but my expensive ass chair has been clickier and clackier than ever, really just starting today. So I don't move that much, but I'll do my best. Sorry for the noise. There's literally nothing I can do to mitigate it because I refuse to stand. So Yeah. That would be ridiculous. I'm standing for three hours. Oh, we're not going to. Well, don't don't jinx it, but I don't think it's going to be a three-hour episode. <laughs> yeah, but some of them are, and that's just, that's crazy. Oh, yeah. Your knees, man. No, you yeah, need to preserve them. Out. Yeah. All righty. Well, should we go to, oh, wait, before we go to from the audience, what are we doing here, Stephen? Yeah, we're forgetting what we're doing here. We are recording our podcast, Not Everything is a Clue, where we discuss Alexander Wales' web serial, Worth the Candle. Indeed, we are. Uh, it is a great web serial. You can actually buy uh, it on Amazon now. Not the whole thing, but the first 42 chapters, which you should all do because it's great. And also there's an Audible if you want to do that and get it in audio format instead. Uh, you can support him if you don't want to buy the book necessarily, although you should because that makes his numbers go up and Amazon likes him even more, as do future publishers. But if you aren't uh, buying a book, you can support him through Patreon. Uh, at his Patreon, which we link, you can also support us at our Patreon. If you like this podcast that you're listening to right now, uh, we do kick back 15% of everything there to Scott, not Scott, to Alexander Wales. Uh, and we greatly appreciate your support. Well said. Yeah, it's a double win. I have yet to have one person ask me to buy them a copy of the book. Maybe I just, I don't know if I can just have keys. I think I have to put in like uh, an email address for the recipient. Well, maybe our listeners are just all very generous people who go out and spend the $4 for their own book because... No, that's great. Yeah. Just saying, books are on the table. But not literally, because then you'd have to ship them to people, and it's expensive. They're, they're figuratively on the table. Right. They're digitally ready to come to your inbox. Exactly. Okay. Uh, we do have one from the audience that I wanted to hit before we get into the rest of this. Night Spacer from our Discord says, I don't get why Eniash thinks that June is saying sex with Amaryllis is meaningless. The understanding I had was that Raven was suggesting June have sex with people that aren't his wife, much like Uther did. And June sees that sex as being meaningless. Uh, Night Spacer, you are correct. I, I got mixed up somewhere in the reading maybe i got distracted by something i don't know but uh that went over my head i missed it it was just a complete misreading on my part so uh i guess everything i said in that section of the podcast is useless and i wasted all your guys's time uh but with that having been said this you know this is another reason why um it, it sucks to be genetically uh saddled with monogamy genes because yeah, man, this this is a problem easily solved with polyamory, and uh, I guess that's just not available to June. So, sad face for June. Yeah, 
I'm trying to figure out exactly what they were, what Knights basically pointed out here. So I found the meaningless sex bit. It says uh, he had tried it, hoping it would bring meaning, and it left him feeling worse. Um, oh, I didn't like it then. I don't want to try it now. I don't think it's a viable option, at least for me. So I don't know if Raven is so much pushing for it. Um, I guess, yeah, Raven suggested it and he ran with it and said, no, that's not my gig. Uh, subtle enough, I didn't quite catch it. You know, I mean, if if you blew right past you and you talked about it, uh, in the last episode, I completely missed it. So, um, like, I mean, I missed the thing to correct you on. So I think it's, uh, it was subtle. Yeah. Raven brought up, um, that after the wandering blight, that aspect of Uther and his wife's relationship was simply gone. And June says, and you want me to use that same solution, have sex with whatever reasonably attractive woman we find in our adventures, then go back to Amaryllis like it's nothing. And, oh, uh, that's right. when they got into the rest of that. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, I just bad, bad reading on my part. I expect to lose subscribers over this because, man. Well, I didn't read it either, apparently. So, <laughs> Okay. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, that, that's it for our listener feedback for this week. Yeah, we're jumping right into 209. When we last left our heroes, they had just uh, left the moral emergency of Captain Blue in the Bottle's child soul factory. and But luckily, there's, there's a dragon out on top to meet with them and obviously provide some cool-headed counsel. Yeah, totally. The dragon's like, oh yeah, let me help you out with that, and then blows fire on them instead. Which they tank like she, badasses. They do. She didn't actually say what I said she said. She says, uh, are you killing him now? June says no, and she says, are you going to kill him later? And June says, I don't know. That depends on how many millions of people are going to die of starvation if we do that. Uh, and then she blows fire on him, because that was not an acceptable answer to her. It's not clear to me why is, she has such a hard very on. brief summary. No, that's that's close enough. It, it, we we d- never got a satisfactory explanation for why she cared so much about Blue in the Bottle. There's lots of horrors, you know? I um, think, actually, we get a pretty good explanation for it in the coming, in this pack of chapters. Um, obviously, that at the time that she did it, I was just like, wow, what a bitch. And then afterwards, I was like, okay, I understand her motivation, even if I disagree with it personally. But um, yeah, when she first like does it, it just seemed like like an asshole thing to do. Oh, okay. I see what you're saying. Uh, you're, you're talking the narrative stuff. Uh, yeah. Because she mentioned something about the souls that he has down there or that he's been fucking with or something. And he's like, yeah, that's the problem. But yeah, mm-hmm. she's got a, a worldview that makes complicated solutions unsatisfactory. So Yeah. Um, and she tries to impose a simple solution, I guess, and it doesn't go great for her. No. But but we are jumping the gun. We are. Uh, she tries to burn him. Grack wards it. They teleport the fuck out of there. And while Amaryllis checking in with her clones, uh, June wanted to use the same trick that they used with Onion. And uh, Grack wisely brings up the idea that, like, you know, this might not narratively be enough sati- be satisfying uh, to the DM. Like, yeah. you use the same same solution to solve problems multiple times. Yeah. Um, I've got Did some discontent wanna... with how well that was handled by the DM, but we'll get there. <laughs> so, Did you want to, at this point, because I noticed in your notes, you mentioned something about ludonarrative dissonance. Did you want, at this point, jump in with the ludonarrative dissonance parts of, uh, of how this works out in narrative versus real life? Man, uh... I, I wish I had had something more refined ready. Um, I'll do my best to generate something as we go through. Uh, my brain's a little fried. I started my new job this week. It's good, but I'm tired. Hey, congrats. They're on, they're on yeah. East Coast time, which means I get up early, um, which is I guess the- ungodly early. But yeah, I, I guess the thing is like for me, you know, 
June is given this awesome bag of tricks and is like given a bunch of complicated problems and is told, go out there and, and solve these problems. And of course, you'll have to get creative. But if he gets too creative, he gets slapped down for it. And if, he finds, the- if he finds a good solution, he's not allowed to exploit it. Yeah, I think the problem isn't getting too creative. Creativity is definitely rewarded because he gets to use it that time he created it. But it stops being creative if you keep going back to it over and over, right? Mm, I mean, I suppose. But if if the solution works, I don't know. Yeah. I've been playing a lot of Elden Ring. And you know, the strategy of hide behind something and shoot the thing until it's dead works a lot. <laughs> um, yep. You know, Is it satisfying uh, for someone watching? Almost definitely not. But mm-hmm. fuck them. I don't want to die, so... and i think that's exactly the problem here because in if you're actually concerned about surviving and you have found a tactic that works you just use that tactic over and over and uh in a narrative doing that is boring for whoever is watching the screen or reading the text or whatever uh so the dm is like yeah the first time you did it that was cool we were all blown away but if you keep doing it over and over we're gonna get bored and wander off and i don't want that so uh you can only use it once and that you know it's like those movies where they, uh, God, I guess the one that first comes to mind is the uh, Star Trek reboot from like a decade ago at this point. But uh, Scotty discovers a way to warp, uh, to not warp, um, to teleport things onto ships that are light years away, going warp speed, a crazy technology that is not actually available. And they use it to rescue himself and Captain Kirk from, get, from being stranded. Uh, and then... They never use that technology again, even though now they could just be like, oh, okay, let's warp bombs onto the enemy ships and have them explode because not warp. Let's teleport bombs onto the enemy ships through their shields, even though they're at warp speed. It doesn't matter because we have this awesome tech, but that would be boring because they would just win everything right away. So the movie forgets that that ever existed. And so many movies have this and it's considered like a plot hole that always gets pointed out in YouTube videos. And yeah, in the real world, that's fucking stupid. If you learn how to, you know, hack your problems by burning gasoline, you're like, oh, sweet. I'm going to use this for everything as long as I have gasoline. And uh, in in a narrative, that's boring. And people don't do that because they want new novelty, excitement, that kind of stuff. So I believe that is where the dissonance comes from and why the DM does his things that he does. Yeah, I I can see it. But I guess you, you don't get to uh, put that kind of constraint on somebody when they're actually you know, in physical pain when they, when they when their plans don't work out. Right. Um, Oh, not in real life. No. Well, that's, that's the thing. So like, uh, June is actually in pain. You know, he gets set on fire, things hurt, whatever. Um, you know, that's, it's all fine and good. Like in, um, X-Men days of future past, they use Quicksilver to break Magneto out of prison Mm -hmm. and they don't ask him, Hey, can you run across into Washington DC and grab uh, mystique for us real fast? Take it two seconds. Um, yeah. Well, that makes sense because that'd be the end of the movie, right? Um, <laughs> but it's what they would do if they weren't stupid, right? So, I, but I, so like I get it in the movie. But the thing is, like when Mystique murders people in the movie, no one gets, no one's in any pain, and we all kind of like are aware of that, right? Mm-hmm. If there were real stakes, we'd be kind of pissed that no one's being, you know, no one's exploiting the creative solutions. In this, it seems like there's real stakes, and you know, when he tries to exploit stuff, they're like, oh, that's not fun, so. I, the, the DM has explicitly stated he does not care about the real stakes to June or, or he does want the stakes to stay real, but, but he has, you know, he has other concerns than just how June feels about things. Oh, I know. I just, 
I, I just think that- I disagree with him. <laughs> okay. Now, yeah. granted, he can't do this all the time. That would be boring, right? But I think uh, so. I mean, so there, isn't I, that the exact there, opposite of what you just said? I think that there's there's a sweet spot where like I would find it narratively satisfying for for him to be able to do this once in a while, right? Mm-hmm. But not not all the time. You know, if he spent the entire rest of the story maxed out with uh, still magic at a hundred and with uh, Prince's vulnerability on, then yeah, you know, it would get a little old, but. Um, so you're saying he can only go Super Saiyan when his enemy's power level is over 9,000. Yeah, basically. And now that, pow- that that ability is taken off the table. Yeah. And so that that's the, the disproportionate response. That's that's what mainly has me uh, uh, up in arms about this. I think it would be extremely unrealistic and unsatisfying for Ratvik to have, to have someone gaining powers so that they're proportional to their opponents every time just because, you know? Well, that's that's how this story works already. Like, well, this, but, this is a I video mean, game. That's exactly how it works. Yes, but you were proposing that like he is not allowed to use these powers except for when the enemy's power level is super high, and then he can untap him, which seems like an even worse solution than just excluding <laughs> the powers. I'll I'll have to think about it. I guess I'm just thinking like again. I, th- I think it's the the disproportionate response. Um, mm-hmm. we'll we'll save it for when when the exclusion happens, but. Uh, or I could just mention it. Like I think that the the exclusion's overblown. The when when he was at soul level one thousand, he saw all the history of the soul perks and everything, and a lot a lot of bits of it had been excluded. And even Raven says at some point that uh, the exclusions to soul magic to essentialism are usually small. Yeah. And so rather well, than just chop off the ability to do soul scapism or something, he just cuts the whole fucking thing. Let's let's hold off on that until we get to that actual the ex- actual exclusion. I just mean like you don't think that he should have his abilities ever curtailed that if he, you know, discovers a way to abuse something, he should be just free to abuse it indefinitely like we are on earth. Um I mean, I'm not thinking fast enough to come up with a good answer for this cuz like I feel like uh you know, Harry didn't have to pull his punches, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, he was told you can't use muggle technology or whatever. But that didn't mean he stopped, you know, thinking outside the box. Uh, when when June thinks outside the box or stays outside the box for too long, the box gets smaller. Yeah, and he gets shoved back into it. So like, it's just uh, I don't know. I'll I'll uh, I'll get some thought. I'll I'll, okay. I'll have to pray on it. <laughs> okay, so June knows that he's going to do this trick again, and that he might not be popular with the DM to do that. So he says, "I'm going to go pray." And Raven says, "You're what?" And I was like, "You're what?" Because, like, what the fuck? Seems like a weird way to put it. And, frankly, if he had said, I'm going to go try and talk to the DM, maybe the DM would have talked back. But because he phrased it this way, he got fuck all. I I feel like he should be allowed to ask the DM questions. It even even one of the things in the... Um, uh, one of the perks or something... I know they're called virtues, but I call them perks. One of the virtue descriptions said, ask the dungeon master, like, for clarification or something. Yeah. And he should just be able to do that. I know he's like tried to converse with the DM before a few times and it's never really worked out. I don't know if he's ever said, Hey, look, it's me. I want to talk. Maybe I'm forgetting uh, a time. Uh, there's been times where like when, when Fen was cut in half, he said, you know, please let this work. And this one, he's like, please let this work. But he, yeah. he doesn't pitch it in like a, can I, and yeah, he, he quote asks for a sign or something, but yeah. he could have just said, look, can you pop in and talk real quick? I got some questions. Well, when Fen got cut in half, that felt very much like a prayer to me. But there's been times where he's like, you know, this is bullshit, right? Like talking up the heavens or just 
various there's been various times where he kind of seems to have a one-way conversation with the dm and obviously he gets no reply or anything so it doesn't go anywhere but i think he's tried to like talk at the dm before i would try to open i don't know if he's i don't know if he's explicitly opened the door for a two-way conversation i think he's always made it like took taking the stance that he's like screaming into the void when he should say hey look can we talk and then if nothing happened then that'd be fine i the dm probably wouldn't show up because he's kind of a dick but I just feel like you should be allowed to actually get answers to your actual questions. But then, you know, I guess if June was DMing and Raymer wanted to Raymer this shit, you think June would tell him what was going to happen if he did it? Probably not. No, probably not. So I guess, you know, we it was already kind of clear, right? Certainly June wouldn't have said, if you do that, I will exclude all essentialism, right? Yeah. What he would say is like, you have to, you, you know, Raymer, you're a smart guy. You have to understand that something negative will probably happen, right? That's that's right. all the response he would have gotten. Yeah. Yeah. All right. All right. Uh, apparently, Grack has his own conversations with the dungeon master. <laughs> that was great. And I don't know if it's because he's joined Amaryllis's Church of the Latter Day DM or like conversations think- makes it sound like he sidebars with the DM once in a while. Oh no! I think he just means it the same way religious people mean it when they say they're going to have a talk with God. They they just pray. I mean, sure. But Grack is a you know pretty literalist with his with his language. That That's, said, if he was talking on the reg with the DM, I feel like he'd have said something, unless he's yeah. told not to. And of the things he's not supposed to say, probably I talk to the DM is on that list. Mm-hmm. So you're right; he's probably just saying I you know I also pray at the DM once in a while. Yeah, man. I I mean I think that the, the christian ideology has gotten to all of them somewhat like even june now is like okay it's time for me to pray and he does his own kind of june prayer and you know that the way phrasing it that way seems entirely due to amaryllis pushing this christian christian idea on all of them yeah well at least june's got a sense of humor about it yeah he starts out with are you there god it's me juniper and we both pull that out because it's classic i i lulled a bit when i saw that now, I know it's from Earth Culture, but I don't know what it's from. Uh, there's a book called Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret, and it's pretty famous. Okay, I knew it was a girl name. I, I was pretty sure, but I, I never would have remembered. Okay. I tried using that in in, um, in my book, What Lies Dreaming, and one of my beta readers like gave me a raised eyebrow and was like, you can't be serious. I was like, ah, fine, I'll take it out. But it works for Word the Candle, because Word the Candle is all about... Uh, these sorts of earth pop culture references. Yeah, that's the that's this book's whole thing. So um, it is interesting, you know, th- because of the nature of the book, it gets to get away with whatever it wants. I love it. Yeah. All right. So let's talk about this prayer first, because uh, he he's, he mentions that shit with Bethel. It sucked. It sucks more because she's such a vital tool. I don't want to reconcile with her. I don't want to forgive her in a just world that would never be asked of me, no matter how much she reformed. And I know last episode we were talking a bit about what what getting mature and growing up means, but a lot of it seems to me is just the process of forming lots of scars all over your psyche that, you know, the time goes on, you get wounded, the world is broken, and nothing is ever fully right again, but you got to keep living. So the wound kind of scars up a bit, and now you got a new limp and you go forward, and it's a shit definition of growing up, but it seems to be like that's at least half of what growing up is. I think as long as you're careful to keep that in check, that I think, I mean, there's something to that, right? Um, Mm -hmm. I don't know. Anyone who's been alive long enough and has pets has lost more than one. Mm -hmm. And 
you know, depending on the specifics, the second one, the later ones probably hurt less than the first or maybe broken heart. You know, everyone's had one of them. Um, and after you recover from the first one, you're like, oh, okay. Then the, then the, by the time the next one comes around, you're like, oh, okay. I recovered from the last one. This sucks, but I know that it's survivable. Mm -hmm. Um, so I mean, there's something to that, but as long as you make sure you keep having fun, yeah, you know, that's, that's, that's my main thing. Yeah. So yeah, I think that kind of sucks that that's, that that is a lot of maturing, but I do also think that it's kind of, at least there's the offset of like people kind of look at you as a more mature person now that you have these web of scars, which I know it's not much. It would be better not to have those scars, but to have a little bit of an aura of like, Ooh, there goes, there goes a wise dude over there is, uh, it's something it's a consolation prize. When COVID was starting out, I was talking with my grandma about it and she was like, Oh yeah, I know I'm not too, I'm not too scared. This isn't like when polio was going around back then we didn't all have radios and we didn't know what was going on. And mm. I'm like, that's like the most gangster ass shit I've ever heard. Like, <laughs> she sounds like she's 110, but only because she grew up in the middle of nowhere, Nebraska, where didn't have electricity until she was a teenager. But, uh, somebody, I guess in their little town had a radio and they were told like, there's a crazy disease going around, but you know, this was ages ago and people knew a lot less. So no, she was just kind of able to, you know, say, Oh no, I've seen worse. I can, I can ride this out. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, another part of the prayer, June says, uh, does say that, yeah, some of it was fun, uh, but that mostly com- comes down to the other players, not anything you did. And uh, by the other players, he means his companions. He believes they are other players. And I think that's a uh, great support for my therapy. This uh, Amar- uh, Arab thing is therapy for Amaryllis as well, theory, and maybe for all of them. I, I like the, I, I, I wish I was more on board with your idea. I guess it just, because everything's so June centric, you yeah. know, but, uh, he even says that was wishful thinking on my part, but I couldn't not believe my companions had minds and agency of their own that way lie madness. Mm-hmm. And I think I've said that phrase before on this show. And, I think, uh, I think about a related subject more about like thinking meta narratively or something, mm-hmm. but yeah, he, he, I do think you said that. Yeah. Uh, I, I just like that. He's so, you know, semi-consciously aware of the fact that he's like, yeah, I'm, I, I might be lying to myself out loud just so I don't have to think about the alternative, right? Um, that none of them are real. Yeah. I mean, they're, they might be as real as it matters, you know? A simulated mind is as real as, as uh, one that runs on meat as long as it's sufficiently, uh, I don't know, doing all the right things. Yeah, and he's he's also running on, he's also a simulated mind at this point, so they they should all be more or less equal. Yeah. I mean, maybe he's running on magic or something, but it's it's uh, more likely than not a Matrix situation. Um, yeah. He does analyze his prayer and saying that this wasn't exactly a prayer. It's more like making a plea with an incredibly powerful entity uh, for leniency with promises in exchange for rewards. And then he says, maybe that was what prayer was at its base. And I was wondering if you had thoughts about, is that what prayer is when you boil it all down? I think so. At least half of it. Um, I was never a big prayer, prayer. Um, but you know, like if, if you're praying for your quarterback to make a touchdown, this throw, um, <laughs> it's not clear really what you're offering in exchange. Uh, you might try and say like, I will go to church every Sunday for a year, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, half the time I think you're just talking, Yeah. you know, it's, it's talk therapy with, uh, you know, I don't, I don't want to say yourself. nobody. Yeah. With yourself, you know, 
I, cause I, I believe that, but I don't want to put people down who are doing that, you know, cause e- even if you are like, okay, yes, I know I'm talking to myself in, in one context, but I'm, I'm orienting myself just so that I can, uh, treat it like a separate mind. And then that way I can kind of like, it, it, you know, it's like explaining your life to something, right. Or explaining the, the solution. So I don't know, maybe it comes off a little different. Yeah. I've, I've basically always back when I was religious, it pretty much felt like, like that, like, you know, making a plea with an incredibly powerful entity. I never really thought of it as anything else. I I suppose like there probably are people out there for whom it's a form of therapy though. And honestly, it's, it's a little bit therapeutic to feel like there is this all powerful sky daddy looking out for you, right? Like you feel better, you feel a little bit more in control of life. So it is, it is semi-therapeutic to think that maybe this plea could get answered totally you know if uh you know i think like the little kids you know and bless mommy and bless daddy and you know (laughs) maybe it's not fair to say they even really know what they're doing but they're not like uh playing with a powerful entity in exchange for leniency or you know trying to make promises for rewards they're just like you know might as well be kissing their teddy bears goodnight you know yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, he says to the DM, I don't know what you want. Do you know what the DM wants? Because I think June does have some idea of what he wants. I don't think it's that mysterious, but do you have thoughts? We have we have some idea, but I think even the DM straight up told him, like, you're not going to like the real answer or something. Yeah. And so it's not merely like, I'm. well, I guess it could be I was bored. Um, mm-hmm. But is this that fun? You know, I don't know. Maybe. Um so we have been reading this for over 200 chapters. Has it been fun reading it? Yeah, but I feel like it's less work than like us deciding, you know, whether or not we're going to nitpick this, uh, you know, is this an abuse of his power or whatever? Um, mm-hmm. We're taking in a good story. He's sitting there, you know, half writing the story and then being pissy when the player doesn't do exactly what he wants. <laughs> sure. But GM, uh, not GM, uh, June did that for many years when he was DMing. It's, it's work, but it's also fun, which is why he kept doing it, right? Yeah, that's fair. Like, I, I think June knows a, all he has to do is think, why did I DM games? And that that's your answer. Like, a good part of it is just that the DM wants to be entertained and he finds this entertaining. Yeah, I think that, I mean, so June is capable of thinking about this on that level. And he's, you know, I think even thought, like, if I was doing this, what would I do? Um, mm-hmm. Hell, even Arthur told him to do that in the mirror. But mm-hmm. uh, I think the difference here is that, like, you know, when June's doing it, it's all in good fun with friends and they're, you know, having moral dilemmas with the characters they're playing as. But here he is as the person, you know, being set on fire and losing limbs and, you know, all that. So there's there's a level of fuckery involved that just is, is a whole other level than telling a grisly tale, right? Well, maybe once you've lived for 10,000 years, some of the lesser pleasures start to get stale and you need to start doing this kind of thing. Yeah, totally. But I guess <laughs> I, I would be, I, I, I might not fully understand my, my captors motives. If that's, if I was the sentient person on, in a DM, in a uh, Dungeons and Dragons game, um, yeah. uh, you know, if I was a player at the table, then sure. I understand that. Right. It's all, yeah. it's all fun. You know, like when they were playing actual cannibal Shia LaBeouf and Arthur goes to the bathroom and says his name over and over. So he shows up. Mm-hmm. Like that's that's all hilarious, and they may have all died terribly. Uh, when it's a tabletop game, that's great. When you're getting your arm ripped off by the cannibal, it's it's great for us. Yeah, but it's super fucked up for you. 
Well, I mean, but you said it's great for us. I guess the DM is a sociopath. Confirmed. (laughs) (laughs) Possibly. But it also, I know we've been saying this a lot. It kind of feels like all this is sort of therapy for June as well. So, like, maybe the DM also has this secondary motivation of wanting June to get better through all this? Yeah, I mean, it, he's experienced a suspicious amount of personal growth if that's not part of the goal here, right? Yeah. Uh, if if he makes- was just fighting his way through zombie land and stuff, then he, he's grown a lot as a person in, in ways that seem unbelievable if that was all that was going on. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and, and I think And I think so, yeah, it's probably a combination and... It, it, it seems to me that the DM and or the people that the DM is playing this for, the, the audience or whatever, is like selected for people who like want to see a fucked up fe- teen getting therapy by living through an RPG so that it, you know, both is good for June and is highly entertaining for uh, for the DM and or his audience. Do you ever see the movie Gamer with, um, uh, no, what's the guy's name? Uh, Leonidas from 300. Gerard Butler. Oh. Yeah, yeah, I did not. It was fun. Um, cool. The I think it came out in the mid two thousands. The short premise is that uh, I think it's just death row inmates um, that can be controlled via they can volunteer to be controlled via com- via computer chip in their neck by people playing games, and it's like basically a first person shooter, and people get to watch, and it's a uh, you know high stakes fun sport. Um, but you know, kind of kind of like Running Man, except people are controlling the runners. Okay. And so uh, it's anyway, I bring that up because, uh, you know, watching uh, blood sports is a lot of fun for people. And so much so that we a have our own mock versions of doing it and B we still write and read and uh, make stories where that's the case. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I don't know. I thought overall the prayer was a really good prayer. And after a prayer like that, I probably would have been like, yeah, sure. Go ahead and, and use the same trick again this time it's it's cool with me what did you think of his prayer overall i mean you know i think it was fine uh i i also would have granted it what i don't like is the shenanigans that uh that the dm throws in at him though um like you know he says if you hate the tools you've given me or i found a trick that you're not that you're not liking anymore then let it be after this fight we all know what fight this was it was the fight with Parasev. He doesn't get to throw some random mugger in his way after June's all got, you know, souped up. And then June uses his God powers to stop the mugger. And then, aha, you used it for the fight. That's it, right? Eh, That's essentially I, what I, happened, except for Tommel the dragon was the low-level mugger, right? Yeah. No, I mean, obviously he was, he meant it for the Parasev fight, but... Then he engaged another Parasev level threat before he got to fight Parasev. And so like... But that was a total fuck you. They're traveling at like basically fast travel, right? Uh-huh. Which is to say they are teleporting from one place to another. Yeah. And this guy happens to show up with all the depth of perception of a one-eyed dragon, swipes this thing out of the air while it's moving at the speed of light, and then they get into a fight. You know, See, we, it just... That, that strikes me, you know, exactly like... A, Whatever, like Davy Jones showing up at the Blood God Doris door. Like, oh, I just I, you happened to you happened to be right there. See, I don't think he happened to be right there at all. He's been I mean, we've ever since the the um 
Parasev first showed up at the beginning of the Anglican arc, like, what, two dozen chapters ago, we keep getting told, oh, yeah, I saw this flash of gold in the sky above me. Oh, yeah, I saw him tomble off in the distance watching the the ship as to make sure it was staying under 300 feet. Like, he has been on their asses the entire damn time. Yeah, until he got an eye jabbed out by the cannibal. And then he was, <laughs> then he, then he, then he was fucked off for this whole time. Up until he backed off for right, a while, but I, I, I'm not at all surprised that he was still secretly watching them. Up until that 15 minute window between when June made that prayer and when he was going to engage Parasev, that's when he happens to show back up. It's not that he happened to show back up; it's that they broke the uh, the dragon treaty thing again. And like yeah. June even thought about it beforehand, right? That he was like, "Well, th- this breaks our treaty with the dragons, but what the fuck ever? I'm about to kill one anyway." Yeah, I'm going to go kill one. I'm pretty sure that also breaks the treaty. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the, the other thing playing against my like, he just happens to be there kind of thing, which you know, there, there's some amount of coincidence involved that you have to just uh, you know accept in any story. But um, without June explaining, like, "Yes, I killed Tommel," uh, Parasev so says, "Like Tommel's dead." Then um, I think that she sent him. To go like, hey, you want another shot at June, right? Go get him. And the guy's like, ah, fuck yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. And then that was going to be like another test of, of hers, right? Mm-hmm. So I think that is probably what was going on. I think all that makes a lot of sense, yeah. But, you know, also if you're you're going to go, you're getting all souped up to go fight a troll. And on your way to fight that troll, you cross a bridge where you know there might be another troll. That, you know, you, you kind of you knew that there was... You might need to be needing to use your one troll shot arrow on the, <laughs> the a different troll than the one you were originally aiming for. Yeah. Well, you know, let's let's keep rolling. So he tells Amaryllis that he had prayed. Well, rather, Grax says, what were the results of your prayer, if any? And Amaryllis is like, you prayed? Were you respectful? And, <laughs> and he's like, June says, he's not some authoritarian thug. Why do I have to defend your God to you? And Amaryllis says, he's not my god, he's everyone's god, whether they want him to be or not. Spoken like a true believer. You know, yeah. And I don't know, is that... Uh, obviously, it's true, right? He he is the god of this world, whether people know it or not, whether they want him to be or not. I guess it, it seems, just because we were talking about maturity earlier, that one another one of those signs of maturity is accepting the unchangeable, right? That, like... He's not my god. He's everyone's god. And Amaryllis just accepts that as true. And uh, I think that's probably also why a lot of people consider it wise to accept death, since death is unchangeable. So just accepting it and being at peace with it is is a cool thing that wise people do. And, you know, that part is stupid because it, it makes us not have fight death, which we could be doing right now. That is a an aspect of, uh, what, maturity that I, I disagree with, right? Um, yeah. to say, no, that's the way things are. And I'm smart for recognizing it. Like it sucks. Cause sometimes that's the case. Right. Mm-hmm. But people are, I think over eager to, to pull that out and just say, no, I'm just being realistic. And it's like, no, you're being a quitter. Yeah. You know, if Amaryllis really cared, she could find some way to help overthrow this bullshit. God. Yeah. He's everyone's God for now. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So, and it's weird. I, I, I don't know, you know, if we don't know who the DM is, but like if it's if it was June, you know, tabletopping with his friends, would he want to be regarded as the god of the universe he's created? I don't think really, right? No. Like he might in fact be because he created it or or whatever and he's guiding it, but not in the way that Amaryllis keeps using it, right? Yeah. But 
honestly, she's dealing with a lot and she's been coping with the shattering of her reality really, really well. And if this is her one lifeline, like I'm kind of fine with it. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I guess I do like your, your idea that he's everyone's God for now. Like, fuck this. We can change anything if we really want to. I mean, that's, that's an explicit condition of the, like victory condition of the game, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's, Yes, whatever you want to call him, he's he's the big boss. But as soon as we get a chance, then I'll be big boss, and then I'm going to make you big boss, Amaryllis, because I don't want to be a big, big be a big boss. <laughs> Maybe she's just acknowledging that he is everyone's god for now, whether they want him to be or not, because June's not god yet. I don't know. It feels very, it feels very too much like bending the knee too soon, kind of thing, you know? Yeah. Or, I, or as someone on our Discord would say, the oppress me harder daddy kind of mindset. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, I can see what they're saying. Um, I think it's a, you know, again, I, I don't think that she could be getting away with like just pretending, right. Cause the damn can read her mind. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think that she is coping with her circumstances and if she has to be like weird at one aspect of clinging to sanity, you know, this is, I think, forgivable. It's yeah. It's kind of weird how much. Um, weight I give to things that Amaryllis believes because I've I've always been kind of a rage against God. If he exists, it is everyone's moral duty to destroy him kind of person. But like when Amaryllis, because I've been watching her for 200 chapters and she's always like so calm and collected and rational and doing everything's right. And when she says it, I'm like, oh yeah, no, that's good point, Amaryllis. She, he is technically everyone's God. Yeah. And I'm like, wow, all that happened just because of like my halo effect for Amaryllis. <laughs> and I didn't even notice it. Yeah. Uh, I don't know what to say. I think you're, I mean, she's, yeah, just, she's, yeah. she's a very, uh, you know, grounded, insane presence. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, well, if she thinks so, then that gives it a lot of weight, you know, <laughs> I guess I'm just observing a bias in myself in real time, which I hadn't expected to happen as we're recording. So that was kind of cool. Yeah, I can dig it. Yeah. All right, well, let's dig it right into pushing and pulling, as that is what chapter 220 is. Yay. <laughs> uh, so, Parasev uh, stops in the middle of a small city's metro area, and June's skills are ticking down by the minute. And they are analyzing what to do next. And Merlis says that uh, even a large-scale fight that you have there will result in the death, death of hundreds, thousands at the most. And June is like, yeah, okay, get me there. I'll take the fight to her. Collateral damage will be high, but... And then he stops because he's hearing what he's saying. And he's like, oh, shit. I think this is the reason Paris of Blue Fire on my ass. She did it because she wanted to get a judge of my character. And as we are seeing right now, as June is seeing as he's speaking, his character is that he decides he's willing to sacrifice thousands of people in order to, A, save millions that are underneath the, the ground in Necrolabum, yes, but also in order to preserve the resources that he spent getting all his skills up, because he can't get those resources back easily. The souls, the skills, possibly his prayer exception. Like, he's weighing how hard it will be for him to recover from losing all the skills he just got versus the lives of a few hundred, maybe a thousand-ish people. Well, there's I don't also, know. There's, there's also the, uh, you know, the millions of kids, right? Right. Yes. So if if they if this fight goes as bad as possible and a few hundred thousand people die, like that that is a huge, terrible tragedy, and that's a huge number. And you know, to to the human brain, or at least to to mine, I think it's neurotypical. 
there isn't a bright shining line of difference between like a hundred thousand and a hundred million because my brain doesn't understand the numbers. Yeah. It just kind of skims past the zeros. Like mm-hmm. I, I can't remember what it was. It was like, you know, people are pissed that Elon Musk bought Twitter. I'm not weighing mm-hmm. in on that, but I saw something online that was like, if you, you know, landed in America with Christopher Columbus and made, what was it like $250,000 a day, you still wouldn't have had as much money as Elon just spent on Twitter. Mm-hmm. And you think, all right, $250,000 a day for 500 years. And that's still not enough money. Like, so anyway, I guess, you know, 44 billion just sounds like 44 something, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I, I, what I'm getting at is he's, he's doing the utilitarian math with maybe just a bit of rage, putting weight on the scales. Mm-hmm. That, that's, that's my thinking. Do you think, do you think this is, a good thing to say about his character or a bad thing about his character that he's willing to be pragmatic and look at the numbers. I mean, we wouldn't want him not to do that. I mean, well, no, we kind of would, wouldn't we? You know, if, I don't know. I mean, you know, if, if it was between saving three townsfolk or Amaryllis, right? We say, sorry, mm-hmm. townsfolk, this one person's more important than you, mm-hmm. uh, than all three of you. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think that's the, uh, you know, I, and how, how high does that number go? I don't know. It depends on how in love you are, right? Like, you know, it, I think that he would throw a whole a whole city under the under the bus to get Fen back. Maybe not get her yeah. back because I think he's kind of moved on, but maybe to stop her from dying, right? Mm-hmm. But, I mean, if it's a thousand random people in one city versus a few million random people in a different city that you don't know, like, obviously you should go with the few thousand. But yeah, it, it feels it feels like it's complicated. By the fact that maybe June could find some other way to kill her or do something. Yeah, I think again, it's partly. I think he's he's also understandably very pissed. Um, mm-hmm. You know, this thing could have easily killed all of them or killed his friends or whatever. And uh, he's like, "We didn't even miss the deadline. Like you're breaking your own side of the deal." Yeah. So I um, guess what stopped me is that he stopped and was like, "Oh shit!" Listening to myself when he says collateral damage will be high, but. Because that's usually a thing bad guys say. I mean, yeah, I suppose. Like in in a perfect world, you know, like oh, you never saw Age of Ultron. You should. It was good. Um, mm-hmm. They there's a it's, it's the end of the movie. It'd take a minute to explain, but basically, they managed not to let anyone get killed. When in fact, it would have been much easier if they had been if they had said we're going to let a few dozen people get killed, right? Okay. Uh, okay. They 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 move mountains to save everybody, which is great. That's what you know. They're heroes. Yeah. Um, yeah. But like, uh, I, don't, I don't I don't I don't want to read too much into his character about it. The other the other fun thing about these chapters, like, it's a lot of action stuff and it's a lot of uh, a lot of badassness. Um, but it's it's a lot of time pressure. Mm-hmm. Like th- this whole chapter, all, all four of these chapters, I think, take place over the course of like maybe an hour. Mm-hmm. Um. It's it's uh so he doesn't have the time to sit and really weigh it. He's looking at her and he's like, okay, well, shit. Um, okay, what do I do? And so he, he's there's just not a there's not really time to check into this conscience, you know? Yeah, yeah, it's a good point. Well, he does say you shouldn't want your enemies to suffer; you should want them to reform, which is another drink moment because it's another thing from uh from the sequences and rationality in general. Okay, I mean, I, obviously not unique to us, but. I don't remember where it is in the sequences, but I will take your word for it. I, well, I know something's in there, you know, that effects. That was a big message of methods of rationality, too. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, no, I'll drink to that. Uh, and that does say a lot about his character, right? 
Yeah. What's, yes. Well, it thinking does. it says a little, but what he actually <laughs> does is he kills her when he doesn't have to, which is sort of a drag. <laughs> yeah. Um, that was, oh man, it was, it was dark. It was, it was, it was pretty dark. Um, but, but what can you do? Go, yeah. He gets metastilling back because mm-hmm. there, because uh, she flew off and he's like, well, I'm burning time. He pushed past the line. And at the time, I was like, oh, good. He didn't get like another achievement. Then again, mm. he already got the exclusive achievement. So you don't get it twice, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but no, you, what you do end up getting is two out of 40. Um, <laughs> so yeah, he dodged a bullet right into the path of a cannonball. But, you know, he's he didn't get hit by the bullet yet. So yay. yeah. The, the DM was like, yeah, all right. I, I said you could use these powers. You can hold on to them. For now. Um, <laughs> uh Raven is talking with June and she says that Paris of thinks you're an inadequate protagonist, which I had to stop and think about for a while. Like, why would she think he's an inadequate protagonist? But I think what Raven was saying is that June was not heroic enough. Like Uther was a paladin. He would have gone in there. He would have slain uh, the guy and he, he wouldn't have engaged Parasev in a city where a couple hundred or a thousand people could get killed in the fight. And that is why she is upset and wants to see him go down. She wants more traditional hero, like a, like a an Avenger or an Uther kind of thing. Not Avenger, but you know, like no, I know one of the Avengers. They, they don't yeah. have a, you know, they never trade lives, right? Um, yeah, you know, I, I, I guess I can see where Paris was coming from. We'll talk more about it. I think you you understood what she was saying better than I did when she when she yeah. goes on her kind of gives her last speech. The thing is, Arthur's, Arthur was playing a different game. Yeah, you know, Arthur could just run in and punch the zombie king, and that was the end of the problem. So I think Raven's half right, but I think that it's not just that the, that he's an inadequate protagonist, that this story isn't to her liking. Yeah. And that I think I, maybe I think she's, Raven... she's testing with June here to see if her assumptions about the new nature of the story is, uh, is on point. Yep. I think Raven was halfway there, but didn't actually understand what Parasev was about. Yeah. Well, because... fair enough. She was brain damaged at this point, right? So, oh, no, wait. Wait, no. No, no, no not, not yet. yet. Yeah. No. Uh, it's pointed out that Uther, like, we are thinking about him as being, like, this uh, big paladin guy. But, like, he killed all the dragon infants back in his thing where, um, I don't remember how long ago it was it was that Raven talked about that, but like June has this problem that where there's all these children in Necrolaborum that cannot be fed. The world can't absorb them. What do you do with them? And Uther's answer to what do you do with way too many dragons was you kill hundreds of baby dragons, just, just murder them all or thousands. I don't remember how many it was. And I was like, Oh yeah, Holy shit. That's a good point. He probably wouldn't have done it if people would have known about it, but they didn't. So uh, he, he wasn't, he wasn't all that paladinic after all. You know, if I can't remember the specifics, I can't remember. I feel like they weren't just little dragons that they were like in some larval stage or eggs or something, okay. which is, is similar, but there's a difference between, you know, smashing a thousand babies and, uh, aiding in a thousand abortions. Right. And so <laughs> you, sir, uh, the, the, I, I think that smashing a thousand baby dragons and smashing a thousand dragon eggs certainly feels different to us. But I think your analogy was really good because some people would say that it's no different than an abortion and they are against abortion for the similar reason. Well, I, I bring up dragons in particular because like, uh, you know, like lizards or baby ducks or whatever, like they hatch and they're rocking and rolling, you know, 
immediately. Mm-hmm. They're not like mm-hmm. humans where they're exactly like they were an hour ago. They're just, you know, outside now. Um, mm-hmm. Like I, I'm thinking ducks specifically, because we've got some here in my, uh, near my house and they, when they hatch, like within an hour, they're eating solid food. Oh, cool. Like th- that's just, they're, they're, they're already living a little duck existence. Like the second mm-hmm. they're out. Um, mm-hmm. Whereas humans, there isn't much of a, as far as I'm aware, a cognitive transition uh, or even like a, a mobile transition within the first hours or days upon being born. Right. Yeah. Even uh, weeks. And so dragons in the stories, they hatch and they can talk, you know, like they're, they're ready to rock and roll. Okay. But maybe I'm giving too much credit and I don't remember the specifics. So yeah, it could just be that either. he just killed a bunch of babies cause they were small. They were easier to kill cause they were smaller. So, um, <laughs> right. Yeah. Or for their sweet, sweet, you know, souls or XP or something. So, all right. Can't turn down all that XP. Uh, he also goes on to say that, uh, or Raven goes on to say that Uther's treatment of the orcs got him lambasted in certain circle, circles. And June is like, yeah, well, you know, from my perspective, he took a lot from how the U.S. and Canada treated their natives, removing orcs from their families, deliberately erasing their history, all these methods of cultural destruction, changing their ways of life through force. I mean, he had to be thinking about that, right? And, like, if orc culture is what I think it is, because I'm assuming these are just your typical fantasy orcs who just murder and destroy for fun, right? Like, they're just there to be the protag- the antagonist that everybody can feel good beating up because they they love destruction and they don't create anything and don't have much value. Like, if that was their culture, then destroying their culture was a good thing, I think. And... It sucks that the research into how to destroy a culture was done by the U.S. and Canada on indigenous people here. Uh, but isn't that kind of similar to how, like, we used research done by Nazi scientists? Like, it was gotten in horrific ways that should have never been done. But once the research was done, it entered the the scientific pool of knowledge and people used it. So, like, it, it's not it's not Arthur's fault, the reason that he knows how to destroy a culture he just knows how to do it, and so he used it for good this time. Yeah, that's that's my take. I mean, but you put it way better than I could. Um, like he, Arthur's not a dick. You know, maybe 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 error changed him or something. But like, I I suspect that he wouldn't have calculatedly genocided the orcs unless he had a really good reason to. And yeah, doing it the way that he did, he knew was like, well, I've read my history. What am I supposed to have? like pretend I didn't read it and like do this in a messier, you know, accidental, haphazard way? Um, right and all he did was you know destroy their culture which is much better than actual genocide like if i recall correctly he did genocide basically the trolls right because they were unirredeemable but the orcs it sounds like you could just destroy their culture and they would be a a better species for it yeah i think that uh yeah i mean that that's that's essentially my take on it you know it's like i i'm trying to think of like i didn't really read i read the hobbit um But the thing is, like, oh, I mean, I read the Sword of Good. I read the uh, Inheritance Cycle. Like, I've I've got my share of orcs. And the point is, like, they're supposed to be just like sometimes they can talk, sometimes they can't. But they're they're the baddies, and they they like blood and they like fighting. Yeah. It's like, all right, we need to make them not do that, or we need to put them all away, right? Mm-hmm. And away is probably dead because we can't afford to feed you know a million orcs forever. Yeah. So yeah, no, I mean. It's just another taboo trade-off, you know, lesser two evils kind of thing. All right. Yeah, so I don't, I don't, it felt like June was trying to do just guilt by association that he used a tactic that had been used for evil before. So 
it's implied that Uther is evil for using it, but it was used for good this time, so it seemed okay. Yeah, I again, I'm get, kind of giving everyone a pass for stuff just due to the, the time constraints and like the 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 stakes of what's going on, right? Yeah. If this was like their calm, calculated conversation, and you know he's going to be talking shit about my boy Arthur, I'd get more on his case <laughs> about it, but. Uh, All right. He, there's a lot going on. So massive time pressure, and he just has heuristics to fall back on, which in this case, usually not a bad heuristic. Yeah. So yeah, um, Uther, not Uther. June says, "Call me an incrementalist, I guess, because he would have done things more slowly and piecemeal." And Raven says that that was a slur, slur in Uther's court. And um, you know, I, I think it probably would have been better to try to fix the horrendous parts of work culture piecemeal rather than just destroy the whole thing outright. But, um, you know, then again, one probably would get shit on a lot if they said things like, we should just fix the horrendous parts of Nazi ideology piecemeal rather than destroying destroying the whole memeplex outright. Like, sometimes maybe incrementalism is... I don't know. Like, the thing is, I actually agree with the idea that if we could fix the horrendous parts of Nazi ideology piecemeal um, and keep the non-horrendous parts, that would be fine. But... I don't know if you could actually do that, and then you risk not destroying everything quickly and coherently enough, and it stays behind. So uh, I think it's better off just to destroy it all at once. But in general, I'm in favor of incrementalism and destroying things a bit at a time so we don't accidentally destroy good stuff too. Yeah, you strip out everything but their fashion game. and uh, Right? That was tight. So, like, I don't know why... Being called uh, an incrementalist would be one of the worst things he could call you when you were opposed to one of his reforms. I mean, I guess like he's smarter than everybody. He's he's read all these stories. He's done it a hundred times. Like he's like, no, that's how this goes, and you're stupid for pretending otherwise. Maybe that's kind of what you know happened. I think it's also greatly in his favor if he can slur anyone by using that word. It makes it uh, much harder to oppose him when he wants to enact sweeping policy changes. Yeah. And at some point, you stop seeing the people around him as people. So, like, if he could just do anything to get them to shut up and do what he says, I think that's that's kind of <laughs> what he was going for. Yep. Um, I think this might have been out of quote or out of out of order because my my order notes got it fucked again. But this works anyway, no matter where it was. Uh, June's talking, and he says that, and then Parasite doesn't come in for a straightforward a straightforward fight one on one, or better, her against the party. She's doing this bullshit. I waved my hand in the air, gesturing vaguely at all the bullshit. <laughs> Fantastic. I'm like, yeah, man, I, I feel you. Like, see, yeah. see this bullshit over here? This is, <laughs> look at all this. So It's I, wonderful writing. Yeah, totally. And it it's great because it's funny. It is, you know, it is laugh out loud funny when, when delivered. Uh, but it like, it only, it doesn't, doesn't quite break the tension, right? Mm-hmm. Um, this whole thing just felt kind of just, you know, in my case, gripping my phone, but kind of edge of your seat, kind of tense. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, they're gilding the lily, which I have no idea what this chapter even means. So, um, uh, hmm. I mean, it's generally a, a phrase that means uh, putting unnecessary extra onto something that's already pretty. Like, lilies are gorgeous. Why are you putting gold on top of the lily? It doesn't need it. Stop it, you fool. Uh, you might even be making it worse by this, but I think it's kind of a pun because he becomes a gold mage in this chapter. So gilding the lily, like oh. Juniper's really cool. And then you add gold to him and that's just unnecessary. You don't need that. I like it. Okay. That makes yeah. sense. 
But this one opens up with a nice, uh, relaxing flight back to the group. But then it gets ruined when Tomo rips the spaceship in half. Yeah. Uh, like, it just explodes around them. Um, yeah, I love how out of nowhere it came. They're like he's just talking about how yeah, this is this is a really boring way to travel. It's basically just fast travel, and then all of a sudden there's shit everywhere. He's spinning through the air, and you're like, oh my god, what the fuck just happened? Yeah, you're like, just ah, damn it, you guys were. I mean, how long was the flight going to take? It said 15 seconds. They're in the air for about 30 seconds. They're probably like most of the way there. You know, I think he said like two minutes. So oh, okay, not quite halfway there, but yeah, still, it, it's uh, yeah, it. It's unfortunate. And I just don't know how he caught them. They, they're, I guess dragons can move arbitrarily fast. I think they mentioned at some point that dragons have like their own magic. Um, mm-hmm. well, or they can, they can become magi in known, in known magics as well. And I was thinking, oh, okay, that explains part of why Paris is so fast. She's got like, got to be a velocity mage of like Magus tier, right? And so I thought that, that it was super fast velocity mage Parasev that got him, but then it was just Tommel, the big and stupid and uh half blind and he's the one who got him it's like okay i guess just dragons are all fuck you fast right it seems that way yeah yeah we got a point i don't think i pulled it out for the show notes but tomel the what was it the wise and mighty yeah and parasev's was uh not as flattering i'm trying to find it here in a hot Parasev the wretched yeah what the hell I I feel like Tom will got to choose his own title. Maybe he was one of the earliest dragons because he's he's certainly not all that wise. I guess he might be mighty. Paris of the Wretched. I mean, maybe she named herself ironically, or maybe she's not all that high up in the dragon status circles, and so the title she gets is imposed on her by other dragons, dragons like Tommel, who are like, "Oh, you think you're so smart, huh? Well, you're Paris of the Wretched." Or, yeah. or maybe she was wretched because she was smart and the best of the dragons and yet they kept her like oppressed under their stupid dragon patriarchy shit and so you know even though she's awesome she's she's in a wretched position or she was just wretched because she's like my universe sucks and you know mm. everything's crumbling around us and yeah, I, f- yeah. I feel bad about that but i don't i don't see a world where tomal sees himself as wise but you know what he probably <laughs> thinks he's the you know he thinks he's hot shit so yeah he's, uh, he's the wisest of the dragons obviously yeah. tomal the the elephant dicked wise and mighty yeah <laughs> yes right and by elephant dicked we mean dick the size of an elephant because you know he's a dragon right he's huge yeah uh so they get in a fight and june almost immediately mirrors his wounds using his sword's wounds uh including all his wounds so like his um gouged out eye gets mirrored so now he has two gouged out eyes and that just seemed crazy unreasonable like i would have expected that he would have needed more degrees of reasonableness than just one to do that because like he when that wound was inflicted he didn't even have that sword yet and he can like go back in time and mirror it 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 seemed kind of bullshitty of me but to me but the dm allowed it so yeah i guess uh you're right it must be the degree of reasonableness flexibility that he has because i thought that it was any wound made by the sword mm-hmm. um which would still be awesome and still works out really well but like oh i see you have an injury there let me go make that worse for you um, yeah so what's the, the, the thing about that though is i can't remember like the, i don't know why they didn't use the sword to get amaryllis a new arm and eye um she's got the prosthetics and i can't remember they never mentioned this again, but as far as I remember it after the fight with Shia LaBeouf, he hadn't leveled up mm-hmm. and he had like most of a hand missing and was peg legged. Mm-hmm. Like he was able to walk because he could lean like on his armor or something. Yeah. But 
does that mean that he's done all the running around at the Doris's and all the walking through, uh, uh, captains, uh, whatever underground dungeons and all this fighting with, with half a hand and leg missing. Um, he leveled up after he killed, um, onion. That was before the cannibal. Oh, you're right. Did he level up after that between now and then? No, I don't think so. And he, cause he, they even said that he didn't want to get prosthetics cause they weren't sure how that would interact with the level up. Maybe, maybe he did do the cut wound healing thing on himself off camera. And they didn't possibly cause yeah, you're yeah. right. He doesn't, he doesn't sound like he's got any problems right now. No. And he doesn't like after he levels up, he says, I felt nothing other than like maybe his face getting better or something cause it got burned, but like he didn't yeah. feel his leg grow back or anything. Um, yeah. I don't know. Uh, somebody who read this more closely than I did will be able to catch that. Um, or it'll be there in the rewrite, you know, if there's any slight editings that go out between, uh, um, this and it's being published. So, yeah. Uh, Cause I'm curious Cause what happens I, to his wounds. I think you're right. So yeah, maybe he did use the sword for that. Oh, but then I mean, he could have used it to help Amaryllis. It sounds like she has two arms now, but one was prosthetic. Oh yeah. Maybe they liked the prosthetic arm better. I mean, maybe, but they, they made it seem like it was the only option. It probably was at first, and then like they figured out they could do the sword thing afterwards. Yeah, but they were just messing at that with point, it. They were like, you know what? This is kind of a badass arm. Let's let's just hold on to this arm. I'll have to go back and read when they got the sword and what when they, like because they did all the science on it immediately, and he's able to heal her with it as well. Um, mm. Eh, I'll give some thought. Um, yeah. But anyway, yeah. But so yeah, he, he he kills Tommel pretty easily. Yeah, I mean it. It was almost not even a fight. I mean, because well, the first thing he does is blind him, and after mm-hmm. that, he just he goes in hard, cuts off, like rips into one of his wings and it's basically stops working. He duplicates that wound. The other one doesn't work and he goes crashing down. And so he goes up and kind of gruesomely just starts going ham, just banging into his head with a sword um, yeah. and uh, gallons of shiny gold blood. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah. Like the whole thing just feels like more like butchery than like a fight, you know? Yeah. It wasn't as uh it was badass, but it wasn't like, Fuck yeah. There was a bit of fuck yeah. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I'm glad that Tumble got his ass kicked. Um, mm-hmm. But like it, I think it was just because he's, you know, killing. Uh, I don't know. It, like if I, that's kind of how he killed Onion, but that was explicitly a fight to the death. Um, but, you know, if, if he had had Onion down and then just like had to spend 10 minutes or whatever, 10 seconds banging through his helmet with a hammer to crush his brain. Right. You'd just be like, oh, God, man, you could have stopped. And, yeah, uh, yeah, you know, he's, he's defeated, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's mm-hmm. just not dead. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what would Tom will do? Like, you know, walk his way over to Paran to shoot them with fire. Like, no, he's learned his lesson. Has he? he I seems mean, like a very unwise dude. I, I wonder what it could possibly take. You know, if, if this wasn't it, like, look, you can't fly or see anymore. Why don't you leave us alone and we'll let you live. Right. Come back here. I'll bleed on you. I'll bite your kneecaps. It's just but a flesh wound. (laughs) You never know dragons. Maybe he'd like use his horde to hire his fellow dragons as assassins. That's a good point. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's a wild card and he's probably got some pile of money or pile of something that somebody wants that he could trade for goods and services. So... Although I do agree, it seemed like like June didn't have to have to kill him. I think it, I mean, he may well have had to, you know, even he doesn't give the time to sit there and think about the pros and cons, but it's like, this yeah. guy's been trying to kill us every chance he gets. He's very dangerous, but it was just more like, again, the guy's down and he goes up and starts hacking away at him. And that's just what kind of yeah. feels like, you know, the, you're like, 
you're glad he's doing it, but you're not cheering. Or at least I wasn't cheering anymore. Yeah. Again, still super on board, but mm -hmm. yeah. It it felt like when he said, okay, well, I'm going to go fight Parasev in the city because a few hundred lives are worth it. It was, it was that same kind of like feeling, although this was worse because it was like up close and personal. Yeah. I mean, kind of like with Onion, except this guy has shown his true colors. You know, Onion, there's still some, you know, possibility where we were misled a little bit. Uh, and he was, in fact, less of a dick than we thought. But, like, Tommel, you know, he seems to actually genuinely suck. Yeah. And so, like, okay, fuck this guy. Um, we need to just get him out of the way. You know, I, I, I'm I, on board. Uh, it's yeah. I, I feel much more that way when we get to Parasev. Okay. So. Well, we will get there. Yeah. But he's got to get back to the group first. Uh, he's Raven's just, just a little bit of brain damage. No big deal. And <laughs> he closes his eyes and wishes really hard for the Locust to show up. And it does, and it's really cool. It says that it came as an image, that of a small girl in a blue dress, down on one knee, drawing in the power from the fields of wheat around her, before launching herself into the sky with a wide smile. And I held it there, rather than developing it, trying my best not to contain the idea or contaminate it. It was my instinct to attach rules, to think of explanations, to work out systems and the logical consequences of the rules I'd thought up, to attach costs or metrics. And I know that people have often struggled to define exactly what Ratfic is, but I think this is a decent artistic explanation of what Ratfic is right here. Uh, The second half of that, right? Yes, yes. The attaching rules, think of explanations, work out logical consequences, attach costs and metrics, that sort of thing. Yeah, that that's. Uh, I think that's fair. So he's, he's doing his best to not be rational at this thing, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, I can't mm-hmm. think at it. I just need to look and believe at it. Yeah. Yeah. This is the sort of thing that will work exactly once, right? Probably, yeah. Um, unless, <laughs> yep. it, unless it went back for Raven, but um, you can't count on it. This, this is the most, you know, this is too druidy to ever work again. So druids yeah. seem to really understand like the rule of non-duplication mm-hmm. that uh the dm will allow but it's but it's, it's so probably- magic as on demand that it's like mm-hmm. you know how's the dm gonna plan for that it's probably why they're the most powerful magic that's a good point yeah and there's exactly one left so june can't exactly like you know hire a bunch of them yeah all right so uh that works and he's back with the gang yay um so amaryllis so Basically, they're talking about, um, I pulled out a lot of this stuff, and he's explaining, no, I used metastilling, it'll be fine. And Amaryllis is like, well, you made a prayer to the dungeon master, you made a compact. From what you said, it was explicitly for the next fight. You're talking about breaking that compact, that it's not something that should be lightly done. And mm-hmm. that that's where I was like, you know, this monkey pop bullshit interpretation of his compact that he made. Mm-hmm. You know, because he didn't say Parasev, the DM gets to just throw whatever he wants in his way. Right. Um, I get that that Tomwell is a, you know, it wasn't some mugger, right? Mm-hmm. It wasn't a random low-level encounter, but it wasn't what they, they clearly weren't talking about that. Yeah. And so for the DM to be if, like, "Well, you said the next one. I I gave you the next one, right?" It's could like, he have won the fight with Tomwell if he didn't have all those powers? Uh, maybe. I mean, really it was the sword that did most of the work. Sure, but he like uh what was it? He used um, stilling to stop himself in the middle of the air. He did the, didn't he parry Tommel's dragon fire? He did. That was hardcore. Uh, yeah. And the, that he could not have done with 100 parry. 
without it yeah with that 100 parry yeah you know the the stopping in the air is something he can do already um the the thing that he didn't do though is he didn't use a unicorn bone during this fight oh that's true and so like you know if he wasn't souped up he he would have given himself he would have save scummed which when's the dm going to outrule that right Eh? i mean he's done that three or four times and it's been awesome every time sure but uh maybe maybe that's when he's gonna stop it when it stops being fun Mm -hmm. (laughs) um so i guess yeah we'll we'll get at least one more of those maybe um yeah i don't know yeah i I think that he he couldn't have won that fight without that power or at the very least he couldn't have won it without some massive costs like it, it would have been different so he used up that charge in that gun in in my opinion yeah i guess like imagine if uh you know i don't know how this would work at an actual dm table or uh, you know a D &D table but Mm -hmm. if raymer was asking june hey look i've got this cool gun that fires once can i use it when we get there yeah of course you know or something you know something convoluted more than that because the gun he could just not fire right Mm -hmm. it's like yeah you know i've i've been charging up this super punch um you know i want to hold on to it but then, like, I guess the thing is, like, the super punch is the thing that you use and it's gone, right? Mm-hmm. Th- this wasn't quite that. This this you use until you're done and then you let it go. Um, mm-hmm. So I guess I'm just trying to think, like, if he if he pulled this shit and uh, whatever screwed Raymer over on this, Raymer would have thrown a book at him, right? <laughs> Probably. Like, it just it it seems like shenanigans. I don't know. I mean, I so I see where you're coming from, but. I, I disagree. Like I thought that he was really tempting fate by by being basically. Well, he then says, "If the dungeon master has a problem with it, then I'm pretty sure he can come down here and do something about it." <laughs> or that, that's not actually what he says, but it, it's very much in that vein. He says, "If he has a problem with it, well, he wouldn't strip me of my power when we're right in the middle of a fight. He didn't do it, do it with Mumrath. Uh, for him to take me down now and, and then it gets excluded." <laughs> And he says, that motherfucker. And I'm just like, what the hell did you expect? <laughs> Granted your prayer, which is more than he probably should have done anyway, but it was a really good prayer. So it's it's cool. But like now you 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 got the prayer granted. You got to use the abilities again, even though you used them for the onion fight before. And uh, then you say, you know what? Uh, that, that one didn't count. It wasn't parasitic. I'm going to keep on these a little longer. Like it, it was he was really trying to get away with more than he should have tried to, in my opinion. And then he starts out saying, well, if he has a problem with it, basically saying that unless I get an exclusion right now, that's implicit endorsement from the DM. Like <laughs> what's the DM going to do then? He, he's got to stop this. What's he going to do? Stab me guy who got stabbed. Um, <laughs> right. So yeah, I mean, you're right. He, this is the sort of thing that like, Amaryllis really should have like put her hand over his mouth when he was talking. Right. Um, mm-hmm. But it did all kind of happen fast. The, I mean, yeah, he's not going to strip you in the middle of a fight. Cause that would be some dog shit. Could you imagine that would be, yeah. you know, put the book down, you know, send Alexander an email being like, that was lame. Um, mm-hmm. th- this, this was, uh, this is exactly what June was saying. Well, he wouldn't scream me in the middle of a fight. Well, fuck. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Super exclusive. Yeah. Two out of 40. Yeah. Um, like, I, I, he did I hear have what a point saying. about how he fucked him harder than he had to, too. Well, oh yeah, that too. But I guess, yeah, I, I think I've said everything I can about just they were clearly talking about Parasev, and the DM was like, "Yeah, sure, I'll grant your wish." Uh, but he's got his fingers crossed behind his back, 
because he wants to see June fight Parasite without these powers. Mm-hmm. So he, he basically lies to him and says, yeah, I'll let you fight Parasite with it. And then he lets him use it for a fight, but not the one that they were talking that he thought they were talking about. Right. Mm-hmm. It just seems like a very malicious genie interpretation of that prayer. Like it, I, 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 I see you know your I mean? argument. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, depending on how many degrees of reasonableness we're talking about, I could be swayed to your side, <laughs> but I don't know. I still think that June was pushing things a lot and shouldn't be that surprised that he got slapped down. I guess he should have just used the, used Parasev's name in his prayer rather than saying one more fight. Well, like, would because, you have been okay with it if if he did use Parasev's name and then when they get attracted by Tommel, all his skills are dropped down to just their natural 40 or whatever level for the duration of that fight? Well, I mean, I wouldn't have been fine with that because that that's an, an unseen or rather like an uh, never before seen monkeying with his skills, you know, in the moment at the time, right? Uh, so, like, I mean, that, that sounds like you want to have it both ways then. Yes. Uh, I want my cake and to eat it too. But no, what what I wanted was like, he he said, I want to fight Paris with these powers. And the DM's like, you got it. And then they get, uh, you know, attacked in the grass by another monster. And it's like, well, I was saving it for this. And it's like, oh, I know, but you already used it. So whoopsie. Um, it just, you know that the DM did this on purpose. There are no accidents, right? I, I don't know. They didn't have to necessarily break the dragons over under 300 uh, feet rule right like they chose to be like you know what i don't care we're gonna fly over with this thing anyway they they knew they were taking a risk i mean i don't and think they that's knew why they, had been gunning for them i don't think that's why they got attacked though they got attacked because the dm wanted june to not be uber powered when he fights uh Parasev. and like if they weren't flying they would have been doing some other whatever mode of transportation and Tommel would have shown up. Like, I think that they were attacked because the DM wanted to throw something at him so that he could use up his one magic punch. Right. I mean, if you're going with that interpretation, then you could even say that they were attacked by Tommel specifically because the DM wanted him to get gold magic and fight Parasite with gold magic. Yeah. And I think he wanted him to get gold magic so that they can leave all their gold on the fucking moon. Um, (laughs) How deep does the conspiracy go here? I mean, all the way, this guy's omnipotent, (laughs) right? Yeah. Yeah, he he is. So, you know, whether or not he spawned Tommel, you know, in the middle of the air to attack the ship, he definitely knew it was coming. Right. Well, sure, but then didn't he also basically grant June victory over Parasev because he knew that he would beat her with gold magic mm. because he's omnipotent and omniscient? See, this is this is where the madness is. I can feel it. <laughs> <laughs> right. Descend into the darkness with me. Oh God, I I can't see. Um. So I guess that the, other, the only other thing is that he threw out all of essentialism, mm-hmm. which is I think a teensy bit overkill. You know, I thought that uh, you, you you brought me around when we were talking about, well, like, why not just get rid of that one tattoo um, with uh, the skin magic exclusion? But apparently essentialism's full of things that are excluded. Mm-hmm. He could have chopped out one more thing, but he's like, okay, nah, I got to make this hurt. And so mm-hmm. uh, on the plus side, this solves every problem you and I were ever going to have about uh, should they use soul magic to change themselves on this? Uh, Damn it. <laughs> but not really because June's still a spirit mage and they can just go about it from the other direction. But oh, yeah. it's, uh, I like how Grack immediately sees the bright side. Yeah. Because he's, he's like, like, no one can soul fuck me again anymore. And he's like, as somebody who's been on the receiving end of this, I can say that this isn't all bad news. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, they go gold mage. 
Achievement, yes. achievement unlocked. I love gold. <laughs> Great. Great reference. Is that just like, I'm picturing just a whatever 1800s panner for gold, like one of those. Uh, so what, what am I what am I missing? Oh, see, I assumed, I mean, maybe maybe I'm assuming incorrectly, but I assumed it was Goldfinger from, not Goldfinger. Um, what oh. was the third Austin Powers movie? Goldmember. Uh, yeah. That, that's Doesn't Goldmember say that? Probably. Yeah, it could, it could be either. Yeah, I like it though. That 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 scans with uh, the dungeon master's. Um, what do you call it? Sense of humor. Yeah, yeah. So the first thing that happens is it gets a voice that just says, "Take all the gold," mm-hmm. and like, okay, and they dump a pallet and mm-hmm. like, no, take take the glove, check for more gold. Okay, um, it's anyway. Very bossy ghost is yes. telling him to. Uh, to basically boss them around. And so this this is the call of the gold. Um, mm-hmm. And th- this does bring us into the next uh, the next chapter. Um, I can't remember. It must be when they're talking about gold and money, but I can't remember exactly. But he's like, oh, we should, we should send somebody for Tommel's body because butchering a gold dragon will probably give us good materials. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, and all those like sexy dragon bones, which no doubt are going to be super awesome to uh, yeah. spend. Frankly, you could probably hit, you could probably make weapons out of them. Uh, that's a common thing in fantasy games. Yeah, maybe yeah. you could. I mean, well, if they have to be intact, like if you, if you can't like cut them into pieces, some of these are going to be way too big. Like, so you'll spit it out of the right. glove. You'll have a a bone the size of like a school bus, and then mm-hmm. you'll draw all the power from it, and then you'll attack. That actually sounds pretty cool too. It does. Yeah. Oh, spill sure ink use- because uh, Parasev has black blood. Oh, okay. See, I didn't get why why that was spilled ink, but okay, yeah, that makes that makes sense. And you might you might be able to stretch that into something about like you know the story getting ruined as you're writing it because you spilled the ink or something. Um, mm-hmm. She's worried about the bad story, but you know up until uh, well, I, my thought after you know the last chapter, I was like, well, the days had its ups and downs, but so far not so bad. You know, they killed the dragon. He's a gold mage. No one's dead. Um, so things are you know pretty good. <laughs> it was a so-so day. And then he gets this fucking call of the gold bullshit. Oh, yeah. So as far as I remember, it was only ever described as like the main downside of being a gold mage was that the call of gold made you put more gold. And I thought it was like a weekly or a monthly ritual. And uh, maybe that's like that, part yeah. of it, too. But apparently it's a little voice that sits in your head and tells you, get gold, protect gold all the fucking time. Mm-hmm. Um, I basically call driving it, you to madness almost. Yeah, it's great. Uh, I like uh, like in my in my notes, I was calling it like the gold ghost or whatever. Mm-hmm. But what I really think it is, it's it's like a it's an embodiment of like June's intellect, like kind of fractured off from the rest of him. And it's geared specifically toward the goal of find and keep gold. That's why I yeah. got all these outside the box, crazy fucking ideas. Right. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> I was thinking, well, there's nowhere on air. We can put gold that'd be safe from Grack. Right. Right. <laughs> Grack can literally just walk to wherever he puts it. So, but June knows that. So June's uh, brain slash the ghost that is telling him what to do with gold says, put it on the goddamn moon. <laughs> and mm-hmm. uh, apparently, like, again, it's not like a weekly thing. You got to add more gold to your pile. You got to do what this voice says all the time because mm-hmm. it might take away your power. Apparently it can lie or like it'll bluff sometimes, but you can never yeah. count on that, obviously. Right. So, mm-hmm. you know, basically if it's like, yeah, I know you're busy, but drop everything you're doing and go to the moon. You're like, well, shit. Okay, I guess so. Yeah. So it it seems absolutely maddening to 
like you you are never free again. You are trapped in this this golden handcuffs or gilded cage, whatever you want to call it, where yeah, sure you got you got all this power, but you traded your basically your ability to have your own life to yourself. Because at any time, this call of gold can be like, go, do the thing, get me gold, put it here. And uh, if you don't, you lose all your power forever. So that that's a high fucking cost, man. Yeah, I, I see this ending quickly and badly for the team. Um, mm. Just because the DM hates, uh, you know, well, the DM would be controlling the voice, right? Yeah, I would think so. It, well, Unless yeah, it, if, if they're doing this around the table, you know. Yes, yes. Like, then totally. Raymer, the call is telling you, you have to... Uh, whatever, kill Amaryllis and sell her organs for money. Do you <laughs> right. do it? Uh, Raymer, of course, does it, but uh, June wouldn't, <laughs> right? So yeah. the second it's a, like, you know, he's not gonna be able to enjoy any time watching the movie or whatever. And the second that anything comes up, it's like, oh, you know, Raven's uh, cloak is probably worth a lot. You should take it from her. And yeah, mm-hmm. it's it's uh, it's an entad bequeathed to her. So you have to kill her too. And it's like, <sighs> I, I'm actually amazed that hasn't come up yet. Well, I guess he's only had the power for like an hour. Um, and for but, almost all of that hour, he was either flying to the moon or fighting a dragon. Yeah, exactly. I guess like I just I wonder how how this would work. Why wouldn't it just push you all the way into complete dark lordism immediately? Maybe it wants to get the most gold possible, and it knows that if it pushes you all the way to dark lordism, you're just gonna say no, and then you lose the powers. But then the gold also doesn't get more gold because. It lost the powers. Yeah, and it might it might inch you there slowly so that it can accumulate gold in the meantime. That's what and I think it's probably going to try to do. Yeah, that's probably it's going to like it. try to murder Gandhi. You. Yeah, but I, I what I suspect is going to happen is that their gold is going to get stuck on the moon. I I'm putting that out there. Yeah, they're gonna they're he's they're gonna be doing something, and the gold is call is going to be like, all right, now uh, again do something totally unconscionable, uh, kill all these five million orphans and sell their souls. Hmm. And he's gonna be like, "Come on!" And it's gonna be like, "Ah, you you hesitated, and now you're not a gold mage anymore." No. So their gold is, and you can't teleport to the moon because fuck you, because that'd be too easy because they could get their gold back. <laughs> right? Yeah, he couldn't teleport from the moon to Arab, so yeah, well, I assume he couldn't teleport the other way either. Alas, well, there's gotta be a way to get there. You know, a rocket ship, maybe. I mean, some magic, some yeah, other kind of magic. magic. Yeah. Uh, although there's still those angry elves up there, like building their their sky beam right i guess but then he goes to the moon and there's nothing anywhere oh they're obviously all underground you know they could all be underground maybe all that's left is like a giant moon brain ai that is slowly putting the parts together to make that giant laser it hates being alive and knows the only way to die is to like send a warning shot at air so that they'll blow it up (laughs) (laughs) it could be it it, it, because if if shooting a sky beam that doesn't work is the best i could think of then it wasn't a very smart ai but i guess it didn't know what it was up against amaryllis was like basically a god right uh yeah so june is thinking about gold magic as he's flying up to the moon and he's like it's kind of dumb that tactile telekinesis is tied to how much gold you get because there's no thematic connection between them at all and also, like, what 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 is this gold call trying to do anyway? Like, that capitalism is bad, probably, or greed bad. And I kind of felt sorry for June because, I mean, I guess he's only 17, 18 now, but he was only 17 when he left Earth and he never learned what capitalism means. Um, definitely greed is bad, but stealing other people's gold is not 
capitalism. It's just stealing. <laughs> so, uh, you know, <laughs> thinking capitalism bad probably is is the intended message of the call of gold is just very wrong. But eh, what can you do? He he was still in high school. He didn't know. Uh, Captain Blue in the Bottle, I think, would be closer to capitalism bad since his zone is much more about like allocating scarce resources and making trade-offs and just descending right into Malachian hell due to perverse incentives. Never uh, never thought I'd hear you talk down to a young adult like that about their lack of wisdom oh. from, from from age. Well, do you know the problem is that he was stuck in fucking high school where you don't learn shit <laughs> except how to ascend the hierarchy of high school coolness. So, you know, he is being stunted by the system. He could have been more mature than that Alas. if it wasn't for, yeah, everything. Yeah, I, it's... It's funny because, like, I guess the idea was like, you know, well, I want gold to have a cool magic with it. Gold is hard to get. That seems fun, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, gold's hard to get. So whatever it gives you should be really cool. Mm-hmm. And so, like, you know, it's it's not going to be related to gold because what can gold do? So it's like, all right, we'll make you fucking Superman. But then we put in all these drawbacks, right? Right. So I get kind of how it got there. But you're right. Like, there's no, I mean, there's not any, there, there's a, there's a supposed reason. But, like, the first thing he does with blood magic is make a flame. Um, yeah. And yes, mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell, and uh, <laughs> the there's there's uh, metabolic energy that he could be burning into literal fire. But it's not clear to me how he's doing that either. Right? He's doing it because that's mm-hmm. what blood magic can do. Yeah. Um, so I think the tactile telekinesis thing being from gold makes about as much sense as that. You know what I think it probably was like from just thinking about it as a game perspective that uh, it's cool to have. Um, Superman type powers, uh, and you want you want villains in your games, and you want them to be powerful, and uh, your heroes have to fight them. Uh, but also, like you want the villains to actually be evil. And one of the best ways to just get like a mustache twirling evil person is to have them be like, "I want gold, and I will kill orphans to get gold." And like, no one is like, almost no one at very least. Maybe there's some people like it, but almost no one in in reality is like that at all. They're more complicated. They have deeper motivations, etc. Whereas if you just want an evil villain who's evil because he's greedy, he's greedy because he's evil, but he has a lot of power, like, gold magic is perfect for that. It, it literally deranges them and makes them into greedy, gold-seeking things that are very powerful that you have to go kill and feel good about doing it because you've killed an evil, gold-seeking thing. Yeah. I mean, Amon sucked. I think that's uh, strong evidence in favor of what you just said. Yeah. I mean, right, so, maybe, yeah, maybe he th- didn't. That was my idea. He, now that I think about it, actually, maybe he really didn't like love torturing people, but he knew Emerilus' stuff could be ransom for money. The call was like ransom her shit for money, make her talk. You know, mm-hmm. um, you know. So he's he's a good guy that got captured by bad incentives um, or tempting incentives. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But at that point, you stopped being a good guy. Yeah. And at some point, the good guy just says, no, I ain't doing that. Yeah. So we get a flashback to Kansas, and it turns out that the moon sucks, <laughs> which I think is a hot take about to be load dropped on us. Yeah, June's wrong. The moon is awesome for winners. <laughs> Sweet. And Tiff has a line about, uh, he says, she says, you know that, that map and territory thing Arthur always talks about? Uh, oh, drink time. Take a drink. Um, yeah, she's talking about a thing that I'm sure you're probably familiar with, but the like hyper realism is that what it was? 
Um, uh, I'm not really very familiar with it. No. Okay, good. We can we can skip it. It seemed like a really cool <laughs> conceptual thing, but I read it twice when I was reading through it, and uh, it's not quick for me to summarize. And uh, we have more to talk about. So, um, I mean, it it feels like a thing that I would have been into in high school, but then I stopped being into it as I interacted more with the real world. Oh no, I meant uh, like you'd be into it in a literary sense, not. Like, I don't know if this whatever philosopher thought this was how things really were. Then that, if that's the case, he's an idiot. If if he's talking about it, it, it ties into the story well, um, mm-hmm. spe- spe- specifically into what Parasev says later on, right? Uh, like uh, the – well, not exactly ex- what she's saying, but not not entirely dissimilar. Um, mm-hmm. It's, uh, it's kind of like a link – or Link's Awakening, um, the, not, the 1990s Zelda game slash 2000 yeah. – 20 zelda game um mm-hmm. anyway uh i mean it, it sounds very much like this is a not just a literary thing that it is a thing as she says sociologists uh talk about where that there is a hyper real version of the moon in our heads and it's alienating us from the real moon and uh, uh like, like like i said something that i would have been interested in in high school and then eventually abandoned when i'd just be like you know what that's fucking stupid there's a moon Fair enough. I will. Uh, but I mean, I don't actually know very much about it at all, so I could be completely mischaracterizing it. Yeah, they, a quick Google just gives me hyperrealism as like the arts, and that's just like making things more realistic than they look in real life, uh, mm-hmm. which is distinct from this kind of like. There's a word for this kind of thing. Uh, I'm totally blanking on idealism. Um, you know, it exists because it exists in my head. Um, and this seems like a flavor of that, which anyway, we don't have to get too much into. I just thought it was like, uh, I thought it related more than it did, but it doesn't actually. So let's let's push past it. Bod, Bodrillards, I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name right. Concept of hyperreality is closely linked to his idea of simulacrum, which he defines as something which replaces reality with its representations. Oh, hey, I think we may need to drink because uh, in rationalist circles right now, the simulacrum levels is a big thing. And I personally think they're kind of dumb so uh yeah i guess that that is why i checked out of this and didn't bother going deeper into it uh he observes that the contemporary world is a simulacrum where reality has been replaced by false images to such an extent that one cannot distinguish between the real and the unreal in this context he take he made the controversial statement the gulf war did not take place by pointing out that the reality of the gulf war was presented to the world in terms of representations by the media okay yeah so this guy is a moron and i don't like anything that he's saying <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's, it's yeah. a fun idea if you take enough drugs and it's a fun framing to think about, but merely fun. You're not, you're not actually going to make any headway, right? Like I, you know, you know, I bet you that one of our listeners is going to post in the discord. You guys are totally getting this all wrong. This is what the simulacra levels are. And we're going to end up having them on a Bayesian conspiracy episode to talk about what the simulacrum levels are and they can try to convince us. Oh, that sounds fun. I mean, this guy died, uh, so whatever killed him, he apparently thought was real enough to do it. Uh, <laughs> but what I liked about it is that, like, we, you know, we don't, we don't experience the moon, right? Mm-hmm. We we experience our idea of it, um, mm-hmm. and that that is true. We, you know, that is true of everything we experience. Period. You know, everything mm-hmm. is filtered and processed into our brains, and that's that's our experience of the world. What I liked about specifically the moon example was like the. The, the idea of the moon like as a place mm-hmm. is still sort of like an alien concept i think to most people most of the time yeah like it's, it's a thing, hard to think of or you know it's a thing in books sometimes it's a thing i could see if i look up but to be like no you can go there and pick up dirt 
just like you can cross the street and do it, right? Yeah. I think that doesn't quite click for people. So that that's a kind of cool thing. But this that's this guy's taken that all the way to Crazyville. So um sure he is a fun dude. I don't mean to shit on him too hard, but <laughs> sometimes crazy people can be the funnest people. Yeah. I, I bet he was uh, a lot of fun at a party or it impossibly infuriating. Maybe he was murdered. I have no idea. Um maybe maybe someone got really sick of him. <laughs> You said he was murdered? No, I said maybe he was. I didn't find his cause. Well, maybe he was. Oh, oh, oh. okay, okay. All right, I've, I've derailed this too long. Uh, <laughs> June says that uh, from a world-building perspective, the moon sucks. Because <laughs> protecting the whole world from an outside threat, uh, they're talking about the asteroids that it diverts, uh, it, just as a thankless job, like, that's great if a person is doing it, but not so much if it's an inanimate lump of rock, and even less, less so if practically nobody knows about it. Um, and I just want to say that I think it's awesome that he's thinking about real reality from a world building perspective, because that is like peak nerd. And I am always here for peak nerd stuff. It also explains why the moon on Arab is more interesting. Yeah. Cause uh, really it should be like, look at that big fucking glowing thing out there in the sky. There should be just lots of cool shit about it. And all it is, is a fucking rock, man. He's looking at like reality but from a world building perspective this is sucks and it's like this isn't yeah. this wasn't built to fit our aesthetics man <laughs> <laughs> that is possibly a problem maybe that is why june found himself on air because reality sucks but a world reality that is built for uh his aesthetic per- perspectives is great he's judging it by unfair standards but he uh found a place that fits his standards i gotta say i think that in addition to the moon sucking space also sucks a lot because like there's just mostly knots and lots and lots of nothing and i it just there's nothing in every direction forever with just a few little things here and there and it's fucking stupid it's a waste of space for starters and i don't know i just remember getting really drunk once and watching the moon and i thought about like how the ancients didn't know what it was and like some thought there were giant creatures swimming out there and in this ocean that surrounds us and that something large enough to swallow the moon could exist and i mean that's such a cool idea as opposed to just like so much space that you can't even fathom it that like a creature large enough to swallow the moon would just be lost somewhere in the darkness that you'd never even see because there's so much nothing out there it blows dude uh i mean it's boring i granted you're right space is mostly wasted space um Mm -hmm. there's 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 no challenging that the more stuff there is the cooler it is uh you know, it's space is romantic. It's, it's, it's exhilarating, though. You know, it's if you could just walk from place to place, that'd be too easy. Um, crossing. What if it was a really long walk, though? Yeah, you know, the longer the, the the cooler, I suppose, but the harder the walk, also the cooler. And yeah, you know, granted, it's super annoying that it will take you know decades going as fast as we can to get from here to the nearest star. Uh, that that's just that's a drag, and that sucks. But uh, you know space has this romance that i like so no i mean that's fair and the the challenging aspect of it is really a big deal but also the fact that you wouldn't see anything at all along the way for those decades like you just sit there and wait yeah not even anything to look at outside the window i mean yeah i don't know if you've ever driven through nebraska on i-80 but uh (laughs) it's it would be worse than that it would there's not even there's not even like corn to look at in nebraska it's like not even grass it's it's just just dirt Mm. I'm shitting on I-80, but it for the most part is boring in the summer. <laughs> Fuck you, Nebraskans. Yeah, come come you've you've uh you've been come served. Fight Steven. You've been served by not everything is a clue. 
Yeah. All right. So uh, they, he's talking about the moon in, on Arab. And elven philosophers had posited that there was a great upward bend to elven history, that perfection was, by steps, increasing with every passing century, if imperfectly, and that this rise in perfection was happening faster and faster. I may just be trying to make excuses to drink three times in a single podcast episode, but does that not sound like an elf singularity? No, it sure does. Um, It's kind of fun. I like how... It's almost because like they weren't able to align on it properly that they disagreed on what perfection was and they all died, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, or do you think so? I think maybe they hit on it, that they got to perfection. Well, there were five different migrations away from the moon, right? Yeah, and after the fifth one, they finally got rid of the last impure things and got actual perfection. They kicked out because all those, like, those nerds who were holding them back. <laughs> right? Well, I mean, because the thing is, once something is perfect, any change away from that is, by definition, a reduction in perfection. So, like, absolute perfection is completely static and completely sterile or sterile. And, I mean, I guess that partly depends at least on your definition of perfection, but that is certainly one definition of perfection. And the elves might have reached it, which is why the moon is completely static and has no life on it. And, uh, you know, they, they have chosen poorly. Yeah, I'll say my definition of perfect, especially perfect architecture, could survive some moron making a 20-minute trip, you know, destroying my... Like, if he just crashed into my stuff, it wouldn't break, you know? I mean, I think he was moving at a significant fraction of the speed of light. No, yeah, totally. I'm just saying, if it was really perfect... (laughs) That's okay, that's fair. It would tank the blow, and June would have been either bounced off of it or just obliterated, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm just saying, if I can imagine it being better then it's not perfect. That's a good point. If it was really perfect, it would exist. They almost got there. <laughs> uh, but yeah, the, the moon really is fucking cool. And I hope we come back there because this is yet another epic place for an adventure, man. Yeah, maybe they'll go there after they go back to Parsement. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's fair. I, we, we probably won't see it again. But man, it just it's so cool and creepy. Like the amount of cool, creepy exploration you could do. It's true. Then again, there's a non-zero chance he'll get to go back for his gold. Um, yeah. I don't know how he could ever negotiate with the with the call and say, look, I want to bring it back to Arab. And it's going to be like, what, because you want to stop being a gold mage? I obviously can't let you do that. No, no, for other reasons, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, maybe Amaryllis can successfully, off camera, fake some evidence that there are elves in the moon that are prepping to steal his gold. Ooh. Right? Yeah. And then deliver that to June and be like, look... I've got intelligence agents in Anglican. They said they've detected motion on the moon. You need to get your gold. You need to get our gold. The fuck, excuse me, your gold. The fuck out of there because it's in danger. Hey, gold ghost. That sound good to you? You got it. All right, we'll be right back. That that would work. <laughs> that probably would. Yeah. And hopefully they have time. Yeah. All right, but he goes to the moon. He stashes his gold. He makes a mental note of where it is, and he flies the hell back to Earth. Right next to all the fucking damage. Like I like how he had to be like, <laughs> oh yeah, I, I'm trying to remember where it is. It's like yeah, it's right next to the superhero landing crater that you just made. <laughs> like <laughs> <laughs> the drunk superhero landing crater. Yeah, remember Hancock? I do. It was great. Yeah, exactly what I thought of when he landed. Yeah. Okay, so uh, the he and Persev have a chat. And because it, between the fights and 
the thing is, like, even though he get, he's assuming that, like, she's dragging this out for some reason to charge up a special power or do something, but he wants to talk anyway. He says, I wanted to explain that I wasn't some horrible monster. Uh, and I, you know, immediately got flashbacks to when they were descending the elevator and listening to that monologue because Captain Blue also wanted to talk to explain that he wasn't some horrible monster. And they just ignored Captain Blue the whole time. Well, you show me June's child soul factory and then we can we can talk about he's a horrible monster. Like hey, I'm just saying that there are some distinct parallels about people wanting to talk to say that they aren't horrible monsters. Well, sure. Like, Parasif probably thinks the same way of him as they were thinking of Captain Blue as when they were in the elevator. I don't think that she thinks he's irredeemably evil. Like, I think that she's just doesn't like what he has done to the nature of reality. Yeah. Uh, But yeah, I think, uh, oh yeah, you know, I think she definitely sent Tommel after them because she just says Tommel's dead, huh? Um, So yeah, I mean, what what I love about this too, though, like I said, the the pace and the the stress and speed. Like he's a gold mage for like fifteen seconds, and it's like go to the moon, and he's like, "Fuck me, okay." He runs there, flies back as quick as possible, shits on fire. He chases the dragon away. Like all this is happening so fast. Um, mm-hmm. I just I I keep hitting that beat because that was the that was like the the theme the whole time. We're just at a sprint. Um, so yeah, I uh, I like. <laughs> june just the fuck do you want like, yeah. which is a totally fair question at this point right yeah so i yeah i like this next part I'm, i had to think about it a lot the first time i read it and i don't think i got it all but like the second time i read it i think i got more from it so i i had a number of things that i thought as i was reading through these that i'm, I'm gonna guess get your thoughts on do my own ranting about because that's what we do here right Sounds like fun. As long as we're ranting, I had one quick thing, which is Do that when, when he was flying back to Arab, it was a ball of muted colors. Mm-hmm. And I highlighted that as bullshit because I'm like, hold up a minute. You know, this thing being a flat disc is what's been, you know, throwing us through a loop this whole time. But apparently it's just, it's just magic. Yes. Like, oh no, they're not really a ball. It's space fucky. And it's like, oh, okay, yeah, then fine. Uh, All the dimensions are twisted up and the light gets weird bendy and like it looks like a ball, but who the fuck knows? I like how it just had me for a second. I'm like, hey, you can't pretend like this is a planet. And then it's like, no, actually, it's not. If you throw a photon at it, it can land anywhere. It's like, it's just nonsense. I'm like, okay, that's the air we know and love. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. If it made sense, it would make sense. (laughs) Exactly. Can't be having that. Yeah. Okay. So Parasev has this problem. That if Uther had gone into Necrolab Laborum, he would have found a way to solve the problem clearly and cleanly, even if it left blood on his hands, is is what she's saying. And I think, first of all, this is a good sign. And I mean, we've been getting hints to this all throughout the book, but like, I think Persev is really confirming it here that either Uther had a different DM entirely, or the DM has changed significantly in the period between Uther and June having their adventures. Yeah, no, I agree. I think it's a different DM. You know, honestly, this is the kind of story I could imagine Arthur telling, right? Especially Uther. Uh, yeah. Uh, you know, he's like, I did the narrative thing forever. It got old. What would a story that didn't have just me getting stronger and punching bigger monsters look like? Hmm. Um, that's that, that seems like the kind of story we're getting, right? Yeah. Um, so you, you think that Uther went through 40 years on Arab and got promoted to DM hood and is now running June through it. That, I mean, it could be, 
you know, the DM could have lied to his face and said, yeah, Arthur's here, which I mean, technically he is, he's right here in front of you, June, but right. Um, I never lied. Yeah. But he would have like had to change his appearance. Um, I, and he's apparently in that tunnel, right? Um, maybe the tunnel is where the DM has, you know, the table with the DM screen and all the dice. Yeah. That's what I was thinking, but I, I figured that's like its own separate plane. Right. But yeah, yeah. I, it seems like it could very well be the case. Um, it just, it doesn't quite line up. Um, cause then, you know, it still doesn't explain like, why would Arthur who got killed and then wound up here, grab a perfectly alive June and have him come here and then torture the shit out of him. <laughs> <laughs> you think he'd just be happy to see his friends? No. Uh, so something like that, but we'll see. Yeah. Uh, but this got me to thinking and back to what Raven said about, she doesn't like you as a protagonist. And I think I get now why she doesn't like him as a protagonist because who the protagonist is says a lot about the story. And she wants to be inside a simpler story. She wants to be in a standard heroic adventure narrative where a protagonist can walk in, kill Captain Blue, and there's no humanitarian crisis. And when she found out she wasn't in that kind of story now, this was her way of like striking back at the world, of raging against the machine or raging against God in this case, that she doesn't want to be in a story like this. And she is willing to die to get out of it. Yeah, I I think you mentioned a little later on too a similar beat. I, I think that I don't think she actually wants to die. I think what she wants to do is kill the the proof that the world isn't the way that she likes it. I mean, I think she's willing to die, which uh, is possibly slightly different from wanting to die. You're right. It, like, I, I, I think I'm, she definitely doesn't want to because she pleads for her life. Um, mm-hmm. But willing to, sure. Uh, yeah. No, I think you're right. I think that she wanted uh, maybe she, if she could. Maybe she thought if she could kill this this protagonist of this story, they'd get a different story. Yeah. Yeah. And I think June kind of agrees with her. He says, I'm angry because there's millions of people being held hostage by Blue. There's nothing I can do that will turn that back or make it okay. I'm angry that there's trillions of people in the hells and no way to obtain justice. And June hates being in this story as well. And he's like doing the best he can to manage it. Um, but I, I think June is being more mature than Paris of here because like he accepts that this is the world as it is right now and he's doing what he can i don't know what june would be doing if he hadn't been told by the way you can take over the driver's seat when you're done he'd probably just be trying to put out fires so he could fuck off into a cabin in the woods and relax but yeah but he's been told like you can change the world so he's i think you're right that he, he's doing a better job managing it but he also has more tools that's true then again paris is pretty fucking strong yeah yeah you know? But I guess this isn't a problem that you can just punch away to the solution of. But, you know, fuck it. Maybe she would have been helpful. I was hoping that this whole time, like every time they took a break from the fighting, that like, oh, okay, she's going to bend the knee and he's going to acquiesce, right? Mm-hmm. Like, great. We could use a dragon in our in our siege of fell seeds territory. Mm-hmm. But no. <laughs> no. Um, I do think, though, that like Parasev is more noble than June is in this because I think that resisting and not just resisting, but like resisting an ugly reality unto death and being like, I refuse to accept it and I will rage against it, even if it kills me, even if it means throwing myself at the protagonist. I think that's pretty damn romantic. I mean, through a very specific lens, suicide bombing is super cool, right? <laughs> um, I mean, I, and I, I'm using that as a deliberately inflammatory example, but it is kind of what you're talking about. Um, now, I, not, you're not talking about suicide bombing. What you're talking about is being ready to push back with literally everything you have, your very life, to slap the system in the face 
uh, even if I you mean, can't I stop think, it. Yes, I, but I also think your bullet is worth biting. That that's kind of what a suicide bombing is, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, I guess the difference though is that uh, I mean, depending on the specific case, but uh, rather than like an untargeted attack on civilians to freak people out, it'd be like I don't know, um, rushing like a in- last desperate charge. Exactly. You know, at, yeah. and your actual your target is your actual enemy. Yeah, the fact yeah. that it's targeting civilians who are innocent really makes it very gross rather than romantic yeah that has to be in that context it's a it's a different thing entirely but like if it was just like you know running into i don't want to give any real world like hypotheticals um so i won't but there there are ways of doing that where it'd be more like what paris i was doing Mm -hmm. yeah and yeah i mean i don't know what romance is exactly but bending reality to your will is way more awesome than letting it steamroll you but i guess you're not talking about being steamrolled you're talking about well you're still getting steamrolled but you're standing up and giving it the finger while it rolls exactly. over you. Yeah. 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 There's something dope about that. You know, lighting a cigar and just staring the executioner in the face while they chop your head off. Like, right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, cooler than that is being a gold mage and killing the executioner. <laughs> but if you can't do that, <laughs> yes. then yeah. Then this is the next best. Yeah. I do think that this is one of like the major arcs of worth the candle because it really started out as much more of a, I mean, it was never a completely traditional hack and slash heroic fantasy, but it started out a lot closer to that where like the heroes fought evil and won and made the world better and it was exciting and fun. And uh, it's it's slowly morphed into like this more complicated, grim place where everything is striving against impossible odds and making the best you can out of a hard world. Just keep on working against things rather than winning and being triumphant. I think you're absolutely onto something. I mean, we didn't feel bad killing Ahmed and stuff, but there were hints of that, you know, when they first opened that door and Grack throws an axe at that woman's face, yeah, it just happens yeah. to be his warder, right? Right. It could have been, you know, a, a maid pregnant with triplets. <laughs> yeah. But no, it happens to be somebody who works with a bad guy. And so mm-hmm. June has that kind of like, I was mad about this and then it's okay. This is, you know, fucking weird, but we roll past it because Ahmed's an, you know, inexcusably bad guy. And then, uh, Folliter and all that stuff, like you know, those had solutions. But every time there was like a, if only this had gone a little differently, you know. Yeah. Um, he, I think Alexander boiled our frog slowly with this. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, this didn't come out of left field at all. It just, uh, like it, like you said, it, it arcs to this point, which I liked. If, if this just came out of nowhere and it's like suddenly, it's it felt like whatever they changed DMs partway through the campaign, mm-hmm. like that would have been. Uh, too much of a jostling but mm-hmm. i i am kind of glad that this part of the arc is coming near the end of the story because i feel like a thousand pages of them working really hard to relocate and feed these kids would be boring <laughs> <laughs> right so yeah. like you know they're gonna something's gonna happen they're all gonna die or they're all gonna be like in a few paragraphs saved right mm-hmm. or maybe some mixture thereof but um like the point is, is that it's messy yeah and that that's that's Parasev's complaint yeah not just that though she says that unlike uther your stories will never exist just on the object level they will twist and contort themselves through subversions retellings and recontextualizations into something different a story about stories so i i think we just got confirmation that like uther stories were standard heroic narratives and june's life isn't that it's a metafiction a story about what narratives are and parasev can see that which is fucking amazing for someone who isn't even very close to the the narrative 
arc, the protagonists, you know? She's, like, watching them from a distance, and somehow she can see all that. So she must be damn literary genius here. Yeah, she's old, and she likes books. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that... Uh, and I guess, you know, I, I guess Uther was such an anomaly. Remember, like, that scene in the at the end of when Harry threatens Malfoy at the uh, Wisdom Gamut, and mm-hmm. it's, like, third person, and how, like almost nobody in the audience of the in the in the chamber like thought to ask like what happened how did he do that right mm-hmm. they just were like well that was weird and then went about their day yeah. uh Parasev's not one to do that like everyone just thought uther was like well yeah he was badass and he solved all these problems that was great we're glad we had him um mm-hmm. or that was scary you know hope you nothing like that happens again but she was like no what the hell was that right yeah yeah and you know i don't know how you know, something weird happened here on Earth. I don't know how long, how weird it would have to get for me to be like, okay, maybe my life is like a story. Um, <laughs> but, you know, she was right. So, yeah. I do I do kind of wonder how that interplays with June's therapy. But I guess it's not impossible to have, to have both of them in the same story, right? Like, maybe it's a combination because the DM wanted to do multiple things in a single story. Um or or maybe like there's no other way for Juniper being who he is to get that insight into himself and that therapy into himself if he doesn't if he doesn't find himself in a story about stories to start thinking more deeply about himself and his relationship to the world, right? That does sound like June. Uh, yeah. I think when he has like part of that flashback that or the flashback that was partly redacted with the DM where like the DM quote unquote got consent for putting june here june so couldn't you just fix all these things he's like of course i could but i want you to do it Mm -hmm. right so yeah like this was all june's you know world uh the world came from all you know june's ideas and stuff um and not you know who knows how coerced that consent was you know we got we got the the mind whammy version of it but like i think uh yeah it's doing both right the DM wanted to tell a cool story that wasn't going to be like, let's get strong and punch bigger monsters. <laughs> and uh, this kid over here is pretty fucked up and needs some, needs some uh, intensive therapy. And maybe the therapist is also June, who knows? Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, no, it seems like a match made in heaven or yeah. in 9,001 hells. <laughs> <laughs> maybe this is level zero hell. Right. I. Uh, Parasev then says that this third modern age, this this was really cool. This third modern modern age is a blending of cultures and understanding that there is no one true culture, that stories are just stories, unfounded and ungrounded, written by men who have not lived their lives, but rather have steeped themselves in the reality of those stories. And like this is this is coming from from Alexander Wales, who is writing this, like this almost seems to me like maybe Alexander Wales could use some therapy because it feels like a lot of self-hatred coming from an author. That I, that stories are unfounded, ungrounded, written by men who have not lived their lives. I think that Parasev's off the mark. Um, I mean, it's only because it's talking about art or only because Parasev's talking about authors, you know, could it be maybe more indicative of like more pointing at Alexander directly than like, say Doris. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, But like, I I don't know if this is any more evidence of Alexander's mental state than Doris Finch. I think that, you know, Parasev might be off the mark here. Cause like that's, this just isn't how stories necessarily work. Right. Um, Or where they come from. Like the, you know, people, 
a lot of people who write stories have lived interesting lives and that's part of the 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 fodder that goes into their their creations right um, yes i agree but it seems that Parasip doesn't think that about this particular age yeah but you know she's she's a negative nelly who's trying to suicide bomb you know i guess i this reminded me have you ever read the essay learn to read kid but don't fall in love no that sounds interesting yeah it's great it's it's two pages long um i guess i'll link it in the show notes but it's basically this this same kind of feeling of a person who is an avid reader and an author and just the feeling of these narratives aren't real and yet i've lived my entire life within these unreal realities to the point that the actual reality seems pale and weak in comparison and now i write stories so i am spreading this sickness to other people who will read my things and yet somehow this is all still what drives me like it Parisif sounds very much like uh the author of that essay when she's saying these same kind of things and it's you know, I sometimes feel that way too. I hear what you're saying. You know, it could be Alexander read that essay and found it compelling enough that he wanted to include a character that said something like that, you know? Um, yeah, that could be. And there's something to that. I spend, depending on which week or month or year it is, there are weeks where I spend more time playing video games than I do anything else outside of work, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm like not engaging with real reality. I'm engaging with a fake one. But that fake one exists in real reality, you know? Yeah. Um, Granted, I'm not thinking about real reality. I'm thinking about video game stuff. But I don't. I don't know if like you know the the cynical shitting on uh, people who create stories seems like what Paris is doing. I feel like she's she's off the mark. You know, people create awesome stuff that people enjoy. Mm-hmm. And you know, is there enjoying it like because life is too dull? Uh, I mean, maybe. It, I mean, define exciting. You know, if things are too exciting. You don't have time to watch TV, right? Right. Uh, you're too busy dodging zombies and shooting, uh, whatever Russians. zombies. Uh, yeah. Right. <laughs> zombies. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I don't know. I think, uh, I heard you saying though, and I found that I say, I'm going to read it too. So that sounds like fun. Cool. So the last thing I have here from Parasev, uh, which ties into my thing that I just said above is, uh, she says to him, you should understand your circumstance in this world, your position, your path. Surely you've thought on the pattern of the narratives. Surely your wife, if not yourself, has made an attempt to put everything into the cycles of narrative that Uther described 500 years ago. And surely she has seen that you do not fit the pattern. And to me, this felt, I mean, maybe I was primed by the things she said earlier where I thought like, oh, wow, this is an insight into maybe how Alexander Wales feels about this fictional living This feels like the closest that Alexander Wales has come to talking to us, the reader, directly through a character in the novel. That that it's like Parasev is saying, hey, reader, you reading this right now, you've thought about the pattern of narratives, right? We talked about it a lot in this work earlier, especially uh, Amaryllis, and uh, we described the cycles of narratives. And you can see that June doesn't fit into that pattern, right? Uh, that that might be signaling something, and I uh, I don't know. I mean, it sure sounds like a clue. Uh, <laughs> it definitely sounds like a clue. It's I'm not sure how I feel about an author talking that directly to an audience, but it's certainly been done before in many well considered works, so it could be fine. And it's 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 at the very least a thing that you don't see all that often. Yeah, I mean, it it was hardly you know 
Deadpool turning to the camera and talking to us. You know, June right. did that a couple of times, like in triply nested parentheticals. Um, yes. But like, no, I think, I think Paris have delivering it here doesn't break illusion at all. It, it talks, you know, to torture the metaphor, it talks about the existence of a fourth wall without leaning on it. You know, um, this, this makes perfect sense for her to say, it makes sense for her to say to him. Right. Uh, right. it's so it, it's not, I, I, I guess, Maybe just because I think I'm, not, I'm overreading it. Well, I was just going to say because I'm not a writer. I think maybe maybe you know when you're writing something that like is more you talking to the reader than you than like other parts of your book, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe you're you're picking up that sense because you've you've done this before. Since I haven't, this doesn't seem much more like talking to me than other stuff, other than the fact that like it's talking about you know this is a book, right? And mm-hmm. you realize this isn't like other books, right? But like we we've already kind of had those conversations. But she's yeah. put it succinctly. Um, yeah. Uh, but yeah, no, I, I, I think it was done well. I guess that's my take. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and I like that you know the mystical dragon that cares about stories more than anything and can see these sorts of things was the one to deliver it that fit fit well. I think that if he had let her live, they could have worked something out. What do you think? <sighs> yes, I think he should have let her live. Honestly, um, I think he's been getting colder and more calloused it's weird because like you know he he was all stoked on uh solving the the doris finch thing without a single murder on his hands and mm-hmm. um i think i think half the reason he spent five fucking minutes cutting into her head was because uh he's mad at the world too and she made a good made a good case for it as well right yeah um i that she was she you. was so fucking much <laughs> Yeah, she was the proxy for the author or for the DM that he despises right now. And he was trying to lash out at the DM through her. Yeah, and he's still got to go back. And they, they even talk about that. He he gets back for all of five seconds. Everyone, no one dead? Great. We got to go fix that, you know, Elijah Blue situation. Like, this this whole thing is just like, God, this fucking place, you know? Everything mm-hmm. sucks. I'm mad. This, that, this mm-hmm. was him venting that, you know? Yeah. And it, it this and, this didn't have any of the fun of him killing Onion, right? This no, was just a no. bummer. <laughs> yeah, this was the exact opposite. This was like the scene in Fight Club where he's beating the living shit out of that dude on the floor, even after he's gone limp. Jared Leto. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That was Jared Leto. I I I didn't think you knew that. So I wanted to remind you and everybody that yes, I believe that was cool. Yeah, because people because that guy sucks for the most part, apparently, and especially the movie Morbius apparently was fucking awful. Which is a drag because it looks <laughs> looked good and it could have been good, but Sony does not know how to make a good superhero movie with Venom correct. being, you know, the fluke, um, and it only worked kind of by accident. They they fucked up Venom, but it was still a good movie. Um, well, they did Spider the very first Spider Man and Spider Man Two really well, but I think that was entirely due to the fact that they just let uh, Sam Raimi do whatever the hell he wanted. Right? Yeah, that twenty years ago when they were when they had good directors, sure. Um, but yeah, anyway, I ranted that because, oh yeah, you mentioned, yeah, there's nothing, there's no victory in it, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. He levels up, yay, and the call of yay. gold tells him like the bodily worth of fortune. It's <laughs> <Just> like, yes, <laughs> yeah. I get it, man. He, he, he mentions, and I think you mentioned this in your notes too, and I didn't put it in these notes, but I probably should have, like, um, he feels, it feels like he's getting disconnected from the group. Yeah. I think that, and he even feels that way too, which sucks because mm-hmm. we just had like that nice, uh, I think it was 
the first chapter of last week where he's doing like the whole check-in thing that he, you know, uh, Val talked about. Yeah. And he's seeing how everyone's doing. He's touching base and he gets a nice long chat with everybody. And I think it's in this one, you know, he's thinking like, I just tanked two dragons by myself. You guys really didn't help. And we all know that. And like, you know, the, the, the gulf in their, um, I don't know what you want to call it, their team power dynamic yeah. Yeah. has just grown way too much. Yeah. And it's like splitting I, I a lunch it. bill with Elon Musk, right? <laughs> right. I think I, I found the note that you had uh, in the notes you sent over me and pa- pasted it into the document at the bottom there if you wanted to like look at it and or oh, touch on it. Yeah. Um, so to get back, Solace is injured, but will be fine or will live. Um, mm-hmm. And he just like, okay, good. The locust weak, but you know, she'll, it'll be fine too. And um, so he's like, okay, great. Um, I'm, I'm trying to lead up into this because he was like, he's thinking that he couldn't really bring himself to be like too worked up about solace. He's like, well, it seems like it, you know, it shook out and she's not really part of the team anyway. And what I liked about it was that I, when I heard that solace was like maimed, like I didn't really care either, especially not when they're like, oh yeah, she'll pull through. But I think mm-hmm. even if she had died, I'd be like, well, that sucks. It wasn't like the first time, right? Yeah. But, like yeah. the first time she died, it like actually hurt. This time, and again, she's she's gonna live, but like it it was like a soft blow compared to what I was expecting to get. Basically inconsequential. Oh, this was June saying it, not me. Yeah. My thing was after that. My comment was reacting to this, saying that's exactly what I was feeling. Um mm-hmm. June said it felt like I'd have given permission to not care, to offload the social and emotional labor for another time. But the more I thought about it, the more I could see things weren't sitting right, not with me, not with the group. And I don't know how he did it, but that's exactly the feelings I was having, right? Yeah. It, I, I agree. I was having the exact same feelings, yeah. But like, you know, he didn't tell us, and this is how you feel. Right. I don't know how he, he did it. He just made us feel it. I mean, it's, it's amazing. This is the sign of a grandmaster at writing when like he just makes you feel exactly how he wants to make you feel and you're like how the fuck did he do that why am i having these emotions right now and how does he know exactly which ones i'm having because his his protagonist is describing them so well i thought i was describing i thought i was reading my own notes yeah like no it's it's uh it's spot on i think that um you know i I could probably try to dissect some of the ingredients part of it is the power ladder um part of it's like the scope of problems they're facing now you know like the the kids under blue in the bottle have nothing to do with the team or any of its members. Right. Mm-hmm. It's just like mm-hmm. a problem out there. You know, this isn't Amaryllis is dying of rat rot mm-hmm. and this isn't Grack is on the verge of ritualistic suicide. Um, this is like, Oh yeah, there's a mess. You guys want to grab some mops and spend a bunch of time cleaning it up. Yeah. Um, you, you know what I think it might be looking at this now and just thinking about it. It could be the fact that we've been, just seeing more and more shit and it's getting shoveled at us and we don't have connection to these people anymore. He doesn't hang around with Grack and Solace and Amaryllis. Like, maybe he does. We don't see it on screen. He's just, like, isolated and alone and not connecting emotionally with anybody at all. And when he, when we do see emotions on the screen, they're always like, oh, God, this is, this is brutal. Now I have to go do this. The, why does my life suck like this? Well, it's got to be done and I'm going to do it because it's got to be done. That's just how it works. Like I know at the time that this was being written, it was during COVID and maybe that was like seeping in that it was just the, 
he, Alexander Wales was isolated. All of us were isolated. We weren't seeing other people. We were just grinding through what we had to do in order to keep going. And, and it got into the writing. And I don't know if that was intentional or not, but it certainly feels like it was intentional because that's, that's where the story has been going. And that's how we're feeling as we're reading it. Right. Yeah. It, it it's interesting that the timing lines up with, uh, with the pandemic, just cause like, it, it does feel like we've been leading here the whole time. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, there's less comic relief than there used to be. Yeah. You know, there's still fun moments, but they're few and far, far between, you know, he's getting regular blowjobs from like his literal wet dream, mm-hmm. but it, it like barely warrants a mention because there's so much shit going on. Right. Mm-hmm. Like he, and now he's not gonna be able to sit back and enjoy a blowjob without the call of gold saying, record this and sell the video. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. And so I don't think that video camera was in there, but my point stands. Um, it does. So, you know, it, there's just, uh, like he, he even says like, I can't, you know, I want to take a week in the time chamber and decompress and Amaryllis is like gold magic won't allow it. And he's just like, fuck, mm-hmm. fine. Let's get this shit over with. Mm-hmm. And then I really liked his reaction after that. Cause he's, that's where he had his thought about like not being connected with the group. And he, you know, previous June, younger June in the story would have just stayed negative and, you know, went off and been pissed. But instead he just like, he just says, sorry, I'm feeling off this whole thing. I, you know, I, it's, it's, I'm shook. Right. Yeah. Um, so I, I just love that he, you know, impromptu, you know, started talking about his feelings to the team when he really doesn't have to. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, he's, he, that I think maybe is the, this is part of the main difference between him and Arthur. Like they're his friends, not his knights. Yeah. It's hard to be friends with Dr. Manhattan, but if he really wants to try and be friends with you, he can still make it happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm assuming it would have still gone this way because it has been like a natural progression. It feels like that is the way it was going the whole time. So the timing was probably just a coincidence, but maybe like it helped to be put in that headspace. I don't know. Um, but yeah, the other thing I was going to say was like, hey, here's another thing that you said uh, in your notes that you didn't put in, which I thought was pretty darn cool. This was back from push and pull two chapters back, but I was wondering if you wanted to touch on it. Oh yeah. Just a maybe random one. Um, there were some candidate druids and like they're doing, you know, the perfunctory introductions. We're not getting any of their names, which is exactly how much June cares about them. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was just like, yeah, I'll ask about their backstories later. And ah, oh, damn it. Now I just, you know, realize that I'm opening myself up to um, like either have them get killed and feel bad for not asking about their backstories or I'm thinking about them as plot devices. I'm not sure why he's chiding himself for having had that thought, but uh, you know, he's this, this is the, this is a madness that, that takes you when you start thinking narratively. Right. Yeah. I think, I think I understand why he's chiding himself because he says like, I would ask about their backstories later on, which feels a lot like, you know, just, checking off a a checkbox on your list when you're playing a video game. All right. I got to go through these three characters, go through their dialogue trees, get their backstories. I'll exhaust their dialogue options, you know, when I get some downtime (laughs) to see if they have anything to say. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. He's treating them like objects with backstories rather than like people. And then like, he's like, Oh yeah, I can't do that. These are people, not just objects that I go click through backstories through, but, uh, but it went through his head. It shows him, it does show where his headspace is at. And it goes into the, you know, this whole thing we've been saying about him getting more and more isolated. Yeah. And now, unfortunately he's got this devil sitting in his head telling him like, 
as he says, this dumb fucking gold monster won't stop telling me what to do, and it's not helping. So let's start oh shoveling this shit mountain one scoop at a time. Mm-hmm. Dude, that gold is just getting infuriating. He's like, hey, if you wait too long, others will claim the corpse. You don't want to lose your gold magic, do you? Like, yeah, but yeah, I mean, other than that, there's the the beat where after he does, like I said, he he opens up and talks about his feelings and no one says anything. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess because they all know that he's right. <sighs> I don't know why. It feels like everyone is, they're like, they're holding him at a distance because, I don't know, are they, maybe they're scared of him or like don't upset the super powerful God or I don't know what exactly it is. Like, what would you think if you had all these powers and you just butchered a dragon that was pleading for mercy and you come back and everyone is kind of like giving you this look and avoiding you and not talking to you. And you know, they didn't actually see what happened, but like maybe they feel something about you. Like, what would you think if that was, that had happened to you and people were acting that way? I think they would understand the murder thing. I think what it is, is that like, you know, they were here fighting desperately not to be killed for like the 30 seconds that they had to fight Parasev before June got there. And to them, that was like the biggest thing, you know, biggest threat they've ever faced. And for him, it was just like this annoying thing that happened because he spent too much time on the moon. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so like, they know that he knows that. And like, they each know each other's state of mind. And so June's like, you know, God, you know, feeling kind of buried by this stuff. And it's like, these little problems, but like these little problems are the biggest problems in the whole fucking world. Right. Mm -hmm. And so they're like, I think they just don't know what to say. Like they can't, they don't want to deny his feelings, but they also like can't agree with him. Right. Yeah. So I think it's just, you know, also they've been through a lot of stuff in the last half hour. It's been busy. Um, mm -hmm. you know, I'm curious to see what happens. I'm, I'm hoping, hoping we get some breathing room in the next few chapters so they can catch up. But, uh, I suppose we'll find out. Yeah. Well, I do have one final thing, which you also pulled out, which I thought was cool from the same chapter. Did you want to talk with that about that one at all? Um, I'm like, damn it, Stephen, stop, stop um, selling yourself short. You come up with some really good things. Yeah, sorry. My notes in the show notes were a little sparse this week. Uh, like I mentioned, first week at the new job. and Yeah, um, yeah. You know. Super busy, like super stressed and all your brain power is going to like absorbing the new stuff. Actually, the stress has been minimal. It was stressful oh, like cool. on Sunday night. Like or Saturday and Sunday leading into the new work into the new job, but first day went great. So the stress has been fine. It's just been you know uh, pleasantly busy but exhausting. But anyway, the mm -hmm. um, the this isn't you know too much I don't think other than like uh, June was the one to suggest to Raven like we should try to you know like it would have been nice if we could have like talked with talked this out right. Mm -hmm. um, and I was waiting for someone to mention that, and I thought it was gonna be Raven, but it wasn't. Um, that not only there's too much to that other than the fact that you know raven could have been the one has been the one historically like hey let's let's try not to do the the punchy option and go for the the talky option instead right yeah i i think what struck me most about your comment is that you didn't you instead of saying the talky option which is what we've been calling it you called it the soch approach with you know s-o-c in caps and uh it like reminded me that they like have decided to go all in on magic approaches and just neuter his social score entirely and i'm you know i'm thinking could this be a reflection of the fact that june made a conscious decision to not do the social stuff and like we sort of get a an idea that obviously he can defeat some challenges with social as we saw with blood god doris 
but then like he fails to really do it well with um Captain Blue in the bottle because they have that problem. He fails here with the dragons. And it's like maybe if they had focused on Soch instead of combat magic, they could have made things go a different way. And part of this world being this grindy combat fest is June's fault too. I would say it's a consequence of his choice. I don't want to put blame on his shoulders because he thought the world was going to be how it was, irrespective of where he respect his points into, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but you're right. Maybe if he had gone, uh, and unfortunately he can't respect again because essentialism is off the table. Um, mm-hmm. It might be excluded to somewhere, but it's, well, no, it was excluded to somewhere. It'd probably be to where he was when it was excluded. And I think we, we did hear somewhere that there's like some random exclusion zones far from anything like it must be excluded to somewhere on air but air is fucking huge it could be just a random patch of desert somewhere i'm not sure if that's how every exclusion has to work otherwise there would be somewhere he could go to change his lineage and inherit every intent on the planet right uh, maybe there is maybe there's like some tunnel deep in a dwarf cave somewhere where you know a hundred square feet of it you can change your lineage in eh, it's possible um but yeah i mean so maybe if he had gone you know like you know what i'm gonna try talking about every problem in this game let's go for the nonviolent playthrough um mm. it would have just been angry dragon after angry dragon right <laughs> yeah like don't you feel stupid for picking all the talking options how are you gonna punch these things to death <laughs> yeah i think it's just set up to fuck him no matter what okay but maybe not maybe this is punishment for him deciding to do the violent approach but the thing is he didn't really decide it he made friends and trusted their judgment right yeah that's true yeah he was trusting raymer and amaryllis yeah and which are the two coolest heads in the world when it comes to like how do you win a game like this mm-hmm. so i yeah, i don't want to put too much blame on his shoulders yeah well perhaps we will find out who we can blame in the next four chapters that we read oh boy so the next four chapters are 213 through 216 and those are 213 the endless toil 214 glass houses, 215 post, and 216 bureaucratic melees. Huh. Well, disappointingly, bureaucratic melees sounds like they're going to be arguing with people about what to do with these kids. <laughs> <laughs> but I suppose we'll have to see. Um, I mean, one of these ways, it'll it's it'll probably be fun. Um, well, I mean, it'll, it'll be fun no matter what, I'm sure. But I'm curious what we're in for. But only one way to find out, and that's by haphazardly wrapping up the conversation so we can get started so exactly we have to thank everybody for listening we thank alexander for writing this emotionally taxing and deeply philosophical game so we can read and enjoy it um i know i said he wrote a game so that we could read it but like i said we're rushing um i think it fits i think it's completely true all right all right well uh as long as things i'm saying are making sense be sure to check out uh our patreon if you want, if you're so inclined, uh, you could throw us a buck and 15 cents if it goes to Alexander. You can throw him a buck directly or buy his book or hit me up to, and I'll buy his book for you. Yes. And if you would like to pay us in gold, feel free to contact us because we love gold. But uh, we'll take just dollars through Patreon as well. If anyone does want to pay us in gold, though, we will give you a shout out next week. I mean, I don't think anyone's actually going to pay us with gold, but we'll accept gold. Yeah, we'll figure out a way to accept it. <laughs> yeah. All right. All right. right, Well, thank you for joining us, everyone. We'll see you all next week. All righty. Bye.